she's a And welcome back and good morning to everybody to another episode of the Mythgard Institute's Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Tolkien Professor and Middle Earth Network Radio and a variety of other hard-working, dedicated Tolkien fans and organizations. Um, uh, we are glad that we can be back recording and that we were able to get uh, Corey on the line despite the, the chaos taking place on the East Coast, um, the, the, the wrath of the Valar and the Eagles of Manway attempting to destroy the, the Northeast. Um, but we're we're really happy that you're here, Corey, and that you're healthy and safe, and uh, um, um, and that your family's fine, and in, and also that you can join us to talk about the Rings of Power. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Yes. Uh, no, it's been kind of exciting here, but it seems that uh, you know the, uh, the 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 wave coming on inexorably uh, was looking to consume New York City and not Delaware, as it turns out. So I was okay. Um, no, it's been. Um, it's been it's been very interesting, but I've been lucky. We haven't lost power, so I've actually had uh, businesses <laughs> business as usual. I had uh, uh, my Signum Academy class yesterday morning and my Mythgard Institute class last night, uh, which I held in the, uh, actually while the eye of the hurricane was passing over us. Um, so yeah, anyway, it was uh, it was good. It was good. And then actually the fu- the funniest part of my day yesterday was I got a I got a phone call. I did an interview with Radio New Zealand. Um, on Sunday night, my time, Monday afternoon, their time, uh, to talk about The Hobbit. You know, they, they, they had heard one of the NPR interviews and wanted to, to talk Hobbit with me. So I had a, a lovely interview um, with uh, Jim Mora, their afternoon host over there. Um, but, of course, it was after the hurricane had started. I had just driven down uh, from New Hampshire where I was with my family, and, and, you know, the storm was beginning, and I was afraid I was going to lose power, but I didn't. And um, So, anyway, I'm talking to New Zealand, and and, uh, and he was aware of the fact that the hurricane was going. He was asking all these questions about the hurricane as it was starting and everything. And apparently they were so taken with the fact that they were interviewing me in the middle of the hurricane that they called me back yesterday. Uh, and it was like I got a, call, a random call from Radio New Zealand again. I was like, hi, this is Radio New Zealand. We'd like to talk to you again. And I was like, oh, great. You know, a, a follow-up Hobbit interview. How much fun is that? And they're like, actually, no, we just want to talk about the hurricane. <laughs> so I appeared on this show late last night um, as a, like, you know, a correspondent from Delaware to Radio New Zealand <laughs> reporting about conditions from the hurricane. It was really fun. <laughs> how, how was that? It, it was It was great. It was great. I mean, I kind of wish that I had more dramatic stories to tell because I didn't. Um, well, you know, it's I mean, it's raining. Um, yeah, exactly. It's raining and the wind is blowing quite hard. But I mean, you know, there were there were moments when it was kind of impressive. But yeah, I just uh, unfortunately, you know, I wasn't able to be like, yes, the okay. tree was just ripped out of the ground and thrown at my house, and because it wasn't. I ran so, out and caught anyway. it with my bare hands. <laughs> exactly. You know the usual stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Anyway, but that was that was uh, that was that was the the most fun that I had in my day yesterday. But anyhow, um, uh, we are also joined this morning uh, by Trish from comparatively quiet Texas. Hello, Trish. Oh, is she is she still here? Did she I is. I, I see her modifying the the Google Docs, but she might not have her her. Uh, here I am. I had myself on mute. I had myself uncharacteristically on mute. <laughs> Good. I'm here with my in my Radagast household, enjoying right. the comparative quiet. 
Do you That's have right. are there spiders or tree roots punching holes Hedgehogs in your ceiling? And... Yeah, hopefully. No, not. nothing. I'm doing a little acupressure on one of my dogs to oh, to good. foretell the future. Excellent. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Okay. So, so of course, okay. listeners, I I will I'm sure be interrupting Corey and Dave from time to time when I can't contain myself, but I will <laughs> endeavor right. to allow them to speak. <laughs> That's right. So well, they're used to it by now. We're going to talk mostly about <laughs> the rings of power today. This is something that this is a subject we have been close to many times, and we've sort of pushed it back and haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, so we are now uh, going to get around to it. And that is, and I say rings of power. What I want to be talking about today is, in particular, uh, of course, the One Ring and its role in the film, um, which is, I think, much less speculative now than it was of old. And uh, and but also, I want to be talking about the dwarf ring because that I think is sort of a more interesting question um, still at this point uh, and to be so we're going to kind of do a little review of the history of the dwarf uh, rings of power and what role they could possibly be expected to play in this story based on what Tolkien wrote and then we'll talk about how we think that that stuff might appear in the film and that is what our riddle is going to be about today actually but First, we wanted to go over, you know, as we have been doing of late with all of the news that has been released, do some sort of current events review uh, in the world of the Hobbit film, uh, and to be uh, sort of thinking about and talking over some uh, some of the new revelations that have come out lately. Um, well, this stuff's good because it really it sort of sets a stage for some of the other discussions. Um, it, 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 at least to the extent that we are that we should take some of these things seriously. And I always right. want to add a grain of salt to that. But to the extent that we're going to take them seriously um, as definitive, they're they really do clarify the picture on many things, particularly uh, where the first film's ending, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that is becoming depressingly clear. Um, <laughs> and I say depressingly because I still really do not like the out of the out of the frying pan into the fire ending. Again, not because it's not I mean, in some ways of course it's 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 from a narrative standpoint, from a dramatic standpoint, a sensible place to end, but it just it leaves so much. I just uh I'm worried about that. Um I mean, the, the overall sense of the shape of the three films that we were getting, uh, and this is especially uh, Dave from that Empire article, right, that, that mm -hmm. we were talking about, the primary sense that we're getting of the shape there, and Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're going to get up through out of the frying pan into the fire as far as the Hobbit plot is concerned, and we'll get some, um, you know, uh, White Council strategizing, but no action yet. Um, that is no no... No, no advancing of the White Council towards Dol Guldur at all. F film two will feature the Battle of Dol Guldur and the trip, the rest of the trip to the Lonely Mountain. So we'll get Bjorn, the spiders, the elves, and Lake Town. Mm -hmm. And then film three will get uh, the Lonely Mountain, the Death of Smaug, and the Battle of Five Armies. Is that that? That, that, that is the impression that I have. Yeah. Um, Again, this is not like we're not like revealing truths here. We're we're you know sort of putting this together based upon things that have been referred to by other people who may or may not know entirely what they're talking about. So, um, you know, all of this as usual with sort of a grain yeah. of salt, but that seems well, to be the general consensus. The grain of salt, the, the main grain of salt I would add is that um, the the Empire article, at least this is the this is the one that's really shaping my thinking. Um, 
frequently make state non quote statements about this will be in this film or this is likely to be here or this probably got moved and it's not always clear whether this is a um a a, a confirmed fact from from Peter Jackson or um, Philip Boyens or Fram Walsh. It's not clear whether this is something they said, oh yeah, that's in film two, or whether this is the, um, the, the author of the article kind of making a definitive, making an assertion based on sort of, you know, well, it's pretty clear that this is where it's going. Because um, the, the one thing I will say is uh, there's a quote toward, or uh, um, a statement toward the end by Peter Jackson, or, or I guess actually it's not a quote, but toward the end of the article, the the, the author basically says um, uh, that 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 Peter Jackson refused to sort of directly comment on where the boundaries between the films would be, or to to confirm for sure that oh it's ending here and this one's ending here. Um, and so I think there's a lot of things. There's things that we, they kind of know won't be in the first film just by virtue of the fact that that we know that the ending's been changed. So like. That from things that they said, we know that the first film's probably not ending at the the um, the barrels because um, I think it was Philip O'Boyan says something like, you know, well, in the original ending of the first film, which was at the barrels, blah 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 blah. So we know it's probably moved from there, so that's probably not in it. But the rest of it, I think it's it's worthwhile sort of not getting too excited about it, um, given that that. They say Peter Jackson refused to to confirm anything. So, but right. I, I think there's certain things we can be pretty sure about, um, especially the things that were actually in quotes from the filmmakers. So. Um, right. So Trish, do you want to kind of lead us through the sort of more interesting points? I'm double muted here, so there we go. No, I think you got me. You got me back, yeah. I'm double muted, so it takes me a little while to get myself back again. Um, Well, so um, on the Empire Mag article, the – hold on here. Where am I at? I'm coming up. So I I kind of really focused mainly on Film 1 stuff, Dave, Mm -hmm. that you – found. Um, it, interestingly enough, Film 1 will have a prologue, and he said it, I think Jackson even kind of said that it's going to be somewhat similar, didn't he, to the Fellowship of the Ring prologue? Yeah. I think yeah. he kind of drew that parallel. Yeah, he he, 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 um, he very much said that this first film, in a sense, will be very... S- very similar in structure to um, to the to the first to Fellowship of the Ring in that um, there's a prologue, then there's a Shire sequence, then there's some activity uh, between the Shire and Rivendell, then there's going underneath some mountains and being in danger, and then finally escaping <laughs> at the end, um, uh, and then finding finding respite toward the end of the film. So. So it actually is very similar in terms of structure, and it sounds like that's how they're they're intentionally structuring it that way too. It kind of right. surprises me. I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't surprise me. Maybe I don't know enough about movies that he would make it so similar, at least in the beginning, to Fellowship of the Ring. You know, to have the prologue kind of the same way. I mean, do you guys think it's like makes well, sense? I mean, it's hard because on the one hand, um, you can say just from a narrative point of view, both films need narrative supplement at the beginning. I mean, if if the Fellowship of the Ring had just started with Gandalf showing up in the Shire and Frodo jumping onto the wagon, um, well, well, you know, it, 
how much in dialogue exposition would have had to happen for anything to make sense. Um, and similarly here, we have again a story that begins after a major historical event. In fact, the Hobbit events are even more directly tied. Um, in that, you know, we, we need to talk about the destruction of Erebor in order for, you know, uh, Thorin and company's concern and their quest to make any sense at all. So, you know, in some ways I can see an even greater need for a prologue uh, in The Hobbit than for The Lord of the Rings. I'd be a little bit surprised if it's quite as sort of sweeping and historical. Um, you know, some people yeah. have asked for, like, the Battle of Asinopasar uh, in the beginning. And although it would be kind of cool, I wouldn't do it as a prologue kind of thing. It would be kind of cool to have an opening sequence. Uh, but, but you know, that isn't what I expect either. But I don't really expect to have an opening prologue, which is like, and now the history of the dwarves. Where are we going? <laughs> first, first there was Durin, and then, you know, we had a bunch of other things. No, first came. there was Aule. Yeah, they should go all the way back to Aule. <laughs> exactly. No, because then they'd get sued. I'm sorry. No way. That is Silmarillion material. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Ten foot that. pole. But anyway... Um, <laughs> anyway, I, 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 I mean, I, I, so basically, you know, the the way that they did the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, you know, with you know Kate Blanchett giving the whole like, first there were the rings of power, and then eventually this all this other stuff happened, you know, that kind of sweeping historical panorama, I wouldn't expect, but to give some kind of uh, an explanation of the the destruction of Erebor, that I would, uh, I, right. that, that I think is is right. going to be necessary one way or the other well and i think um i think there's a couple couple things about that one is you know they did actually build dale i mean the original right. dale so in order for it to be destroyed so yeah i mean we're going to see that at some point the other thing is whether it's in the prologue or whether it's in a back flat back flash flashback hello <laughs> from thorin um i know we are going to see thorin we are going to see the quote-unquote great battle between the dwarves and the goblins or the orcs because Thorin I mean Armitage talks about that he placed Thorin as a younger man in the battle which and then, seems you know, hard to believe that he could be younger so younger I know <laughs> what, 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 is he going to be like what like you know, in diapers like you know riding a little dwarf trike or something I mean, like seriously, he's gonna have a pacifier. What, what are we gonna see? Younger Thorin. I know. I don't know. Is it? Is there? Does he have like a one strand of gray hair right now? Maybe they just take that one <laughs> yes, strand of gray yeah. hair. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The before and after <laughs> shots with the one strand of gray hair. I know. I don't. Or maybe his hair is gonna be shorter or something, or he'll be beardless. I don't <laughs> right. know. Right. Right. <laughs> so it. But the, um. It seems likely. That but yeah. The, so we are gonna see something about that battle. I'm sorry, Dave. Go yeah. Ahead. No, it's all right. It seems likely. That the prologue is most likely going to be Lonely Mountain focused, and, yeah. and given that yeah. they've said that that right. given right. that they've said we we're going to get a glimpse of Smaug in the first film, most likely in a prologue. Um, that all seems to point to right. uh, a a prologue showing the 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 invasion of the Lonely Mountain right. by Smaug. So. Yep. Yep. And that's actually the next point. A brief appearance, quote unquote, brief appearance in film one, fully revealed in film two. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I so. would, I we've that's one thing we've been banking on from the beginning mm -hmm. is the right. fact that we're not going to get Smaug, or at least not going to get the full reveal of Smaug in the first film, and that I would be very surprised to see him go back on, especially with the change to three films. Um, yep. so yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, what I would expect now is 
teaser, you know, for Smaug, teaser in film one, reveal in film two, and then, you know, the full treatment in film three. Because if, if you know, the question, and we're getting a little bit premature here, but thinking about the overall structure that we were just talking about, if they're going to only get to the Lonely Mountain, you know, if they're going to break after the Battle of Dol Guldur and after what, I guess, Lake Town, we're not going to get much of Smaug uh, in film too, of course. Nope. There's not going to be much room for it. Um, I, I don't... I, it doesn't sound like... I mean, if, if if that shape turns out to be true, then I guess conversations with Smaug would start... W- would be near the beginning of film three. Yep. So, um... So anyway, it's yeah... It's going to be packed. That's, that's, that, yeah, <laughs> it sure is. And again, this is the reason why, you know, I've been kind of rooting for ending after... Uh, out of the frying pan into the fire because I just it just seems to me that the proportion of the overall narrative of the story that is going to be covered in film one seems to be seems to me distressingly small and what causes me distress yeah. about it is the fact that it sort of it it leads me to 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 fear that it's going to be too compressed in the other two films. They're going to end up just leaving out a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. And the whole point was and, and Dave, this is what you know your point. Of you know several months ago, the whole point of switching to three films was so that they didn't have to cut stuff out, so they didn't have to right. compress stuff. Instead, the, um, instead so, what they're add, instead what they're doing is just making room to add things that we don't particularly care about in the first film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what have they made room for in the first film? I, I, <laughs> I have a. I think that the. I think the sequence with the goblins under the mountains is going to be really yeah, elongated. I agree with I think that. It's going to be made way longer. That's really starting to yeah. be the impression that I'm getting. Seems very- yeah, especially with the way that it's featuring on all the trailers and everything. I mean, it's yeah, and the uh, Lego toys. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and by the way, I was recently both uh, when I was down in Nashville and when I was up in Boston, I was taken around on bookstore tours and I was signing the stock of my books in various bookstores. And most of the bookstores had a Hobbit table, and at least half of the Hobbit tables had those toy figurines on them. Oh really? Geez. So I got a good look. Well, so at you got up things. close and personal, huh? You really I got did, to examine yeah. them. Yeah, the Toriel <laughs> one, the the, the Toriel Legolas pack, and the uh, the 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 goblins, and I saw the Thorin and the Great Goblin one, and yep, yep. Oh, they're interesting. So um, and actually, speaking of which, it's a sli- it's a slight deviation on the topic, but I just w- I'm watching <laughs> Dave's little marker run around here, and I, Dave, were you going to say this? Yeah, what you've go got ahead. your marker on right uh, now. This is just yeah. one of my favorite things from the. Episode. Didn't ja- Jackson actually said this? That yes. he patterned the Great Goblin on Kim Jong Il. <laughs> I was stunned when I read that. <laughs> I I have nothing to say about that. Yeah. I also <laughs> to say about that. I, I particularly love um I particularly love the the fact that the Empire uh, author I should probably find this person's name um refers to Kim Jong Il as the late unbeloved Dark Lord of North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, the other thing is, I mean, definitely not by stature. He certainly didn't pattern the Great Goblin that way, but I don't know. Very odd. Um, well, let's see now. So so we were just talking, so yeah, so it sounds like film one. I mean, we are definitely getting, I think, pretty much 
confirmation that we're going to be out of the frying pan of the fire. The one thing is that Bjorn seems like Dave notes. Bjorn seems ambiguous. We're not, sh you know, there hasn't really been. I mean, you know, we've seen clips of them being in Bjorn's house, which I'm assuming is going to be in film two, but we're not sure if Bjorn's going to show up in film one or not. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would suspect. Um... I mean, given where they're going to end it, I would not at all be surprised just to to meet Bjorn at the end. Um, maybe even in the form of a bear, in right? In the form would... of a bear, yeah. Maybe to see right. a giant bear by the end of the first film. Uh, right. But I mean, I, it, it depends on where. Well, really, it kind of pro forces us to revisit one of our previous questions, which has been made uh, moot by the. Uh, by the shift to three films is how they're going to end. On what note are they going to end the first film? I mean, I, in mm. some ways, I actually find that a kind of an interesting question again. Um, we all decided, almost there was almost unanimous voting <clears throat> for the ominous ending. Mm -hmm. And I think that most of us were picturing when we were looking at the, uh, the barrel ride being pretty much the end of the film, um, we were... Um, we were all, I, most of us, I think, picturing some kind of like ominous lookout towards the lonely mountain, maybe a little burst of flame or something to suggest the dragon. Um, Sounds like that's being pushed off to film two now. Film two, yeah, that that might actually be the end, the ending of film two, which again, I'm looking at the comments. I'm sorry, back to our talk about Thorin being oh yeah being young. Ed says they call him Thorin Acorn Shield. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, the cat wants to see sorry. a bearded toddler of of Thorin. I think that would be good. So, um, so you know what I think? Um, uh, I I personally think it's still going to be ominous, but now the omen will be uh, Mirkwood and the Necromancer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that could be. See, now, I think be. that this question is a great example of how you guys got it right, because you made that question such that even with this change, it still stands. Right. You know what I mean? You made it... That's right. Yes. You didn't tie it yes. to specific events. Yeah, so that's good. People's <laughs> answers, perhaps, are... Right. Uh, Might not be the same. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I do kind of wonder that now, especially if we're going to get the... You know, this protracted goblin... Uh, and Protracted and probably multi-part, you know, goblin action sequence chase scene... Mm -hmm. um, that we seem to be getting bits of in the trailers. Uh, and we're going to end then with the wolves and the forest and the fire and the eagles. Um, it seems quite likely that we would end that in like a more restful place rather than a more ominous place. Um, right. But I don't That's know. Point, I mean, there's still the question of like the last shot and where is it going to end? Um, and it still does seem most likely, I think, that it's going to be ominous. Yeah, as you say, Dave, maybe a, a shot of Dal Guldur or a shot of just of the forest. But I don't know. I'm less confident in that now than I was Yeah, before. I am too. Um, I think it's going to be this big shot of a bear up on his hind legs roaring at them and then cut to credits. Yeah, or like, you know, and some, and some you know, some snappy remark by one of the dwarves. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Well, it, it seems. I mean, my my. So let's let's think about. Let's remember back to the Fellowship of the Ring and how that ended. Since since Peter Jackson um, encouraged us to think of these these films as structured right. similarly, that ended with um, uh, uh, Frodo and Sam looking over the the wide um, uh, uh, 
the the wide sort of land that they have to travel to in order to get to Mordor and Mount Doom, and I don't can't recall off the top of my head now what what the, exactly that uh, plane is called, but um, and it and it struck sort of a simultaneously hopeful note, you know. Oh, I'm glad you're here with me, Sam, and you know, right. no place else right. I'd rather be, Mr. Frodo. Uh, but also somewhat ominous because you're looking and you're thinking, well, <laughs> these guys don't stand a chance of making it. Um, yes. And I can't the recall. Emin Wheel, Wheel, you're thinking. Yeah, Emin Wheel, yeah. And I can't recall if there's any, if we get any glimpses of um, uh, the other hobbits or anything else. Okay. I think it really just focuses on Sam and Frodo because um, most of the, most of the, um, um, the action with the company there uh, happens at the beginning of Two Towers. So it really is mostly Sam and Frodo. So. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean that that shot, um, that shot over the Emin Mule and the distant view of Mount Doom in the far distance, um, is what was sort of primarily influencing me in thinking about the end of the first film before. Um, but, but I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it certainly is a kind of a standard. Um, I mean, it seems like a, a very natural uh, turn to take to have, um, you know, be like, well, they have, they have finally escaped from this, like, one long protracted danger, and now here's, like, a little glimpse at, you know, the challenge that faces them in the next film. Um, basic. I mean, that's, that, 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 as I say, certainly seems like a, a sensible uh, thing for them to do. Though, for some reason, like, the whole, like, ominous shot of Mirkwood thing isn't, isn't doing it for me. You know, really? I, 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 yeah. But doesn't that seem? I mean, if they want to live, leave us with a cliffhanger that indicates what's in store for us in the next film, so that we, so that we want to come watch. That seems like the most logical thing, since that's where they're going, right? Um, uh, what about Dol yeah. Guldur? That's Maybe. possible. What about Ross Gobel? <laughs> yeah. Spiders, spiders on the roof, climbing around <laughs> on the outside, talking psychically. Exactly. Yeah, that whole business about the psychic talking of the spiders. Um, yeah, that was another thing that showed up in this article. Me. Doesn't surprise me. Because on the one hand, you know, as I've been saying all along, I mean, if I, I, I could not imagine the spiders uh, in the film Hobbit talking like they do in the book. Like that, I just. But that Bilbo not... is the only one who can understand them. That's kind okay. of cheesy. All right. Well, all the spiders. Yes. Are, so are we transitioning to film two stuff? Oh, sorry. Oh, well, sorry. we kind of jumped ahead. No, no, there. I'm fine. I you just know. just wanted to run down briefly. So, um, uh, as far as we know, it sounds like film one is really going to be uh, um, uh, some kind of prologue, most likely related to the Lonely Mountain, as opposed to the sort of more epic dwarf goblin history. Um, then Shire... Actually, Owen McMahon gave us a quote about that. I'm I'm interrupting you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. About, from Richard Armitage. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But but I, right. I mean, just because they filmed that, and just because Richard Armitage says, you know, well, we filmed this. I think it's in there. These guys. Are, that, <laughs> so th that's a good point because because um, Ed Powell also mentioned um, um, yes. Benedict Cumberbatch's quote about, well, I think Smog's eye opens at the end. So one thing's one thing's very clear from this article. They they have some quotes from Martin Freeman about sort of what they're filming, where stuff is going. The actors have no idea. 
They don't know. No, Mar- I... <laughs> Martin Freeman made that incredibly clear. It was like, yeah, they're bringing me back to film some stuff. I don't know what it's for, where it's going. You know, I don't know what's going on with this three film thing. I'm just going to trust that they know what they're doing. So, uh, you know, like, I-, I don't think we should give too much stock to actors saying, well, here's where the first film's going to end. Particularly when the quotes when the quotes uh, are from the pre-three film decision, but even afterward, these guys aren't sitting in the cutting room. It, it it sounds like the decision to for restructuring the story was the was the three was was um um uh, uh Peter Fran and Philippa sitting in a room, and even as. Peter was was um, down, uh, busy directing. Fran and Philippa were up in the room rewriting and restructuring. The a- the actors aren't part of that process, and they really don't know. So uh, so I, I I'm everything that an actor says, other than other than something like what Martin Freeman says, which is I have no clue. That's the that's the one comment that I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, and 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 they do often say. I mean, like the fact that uh, Armitage is talking about shooting uh, stuff for the battle with the goblins that serves as a kind of prologue um, that could reflect nothing more than that he has the general sense that that battle happened historically previous to not that that it's actually being planned to be put into the first part of the film um, right because yeah as you say he doesn't necessarily know the structure here um, yeah as 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 Ed points out the actors have seen the scripts from the two film version but not any of the cuts um and so that's it yeah even their script knowledge is outdated yep. essentially yeah <laughs> so um but anyway so there's a prologue most likely lonely mountain focused um yeah shire sequence trollshaws uh rivendell misty mountains um which includes which clearly includes from the TV spots giant stone giants stone, um, yeah stone giants absolutely uh probably an extended under the mountain sequence hopefully that means an extended riddles in the dark sequence escape from the mountains um rescue by the eagles uh and then not quite sure what else there might be after that uh, as far as as far as sort of some of the other main stuff like the White Council stuff, it really sounds like the White Council stuff is is getting pushed to film too. There, obviously, the White Council will probably meet in Rivendell um, while the while the company is there. I, I'm guessing since that's the only yeah. time they would all be yeah. in Rivendell during the timeline of the films. But and we've seen several shots with like Bilbo and Thorin yeah. in the background. But what they mention yeah. about Radagast I... is. Radagast um, and the White Council will be introduced in film one, but that they're they're you know uh, um, the 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 talk about the the Battle of Dol Guldur is indicates that that will be in film two. I'm starting to think that the the scenes that we've that have been hinted to us of Gandalf sneaking into Dol Guldur and stuff, possibly a prologue for film two now. Um, possibly, I actually would still tend to think of that as like flashback in film one yeah um rather than prologue well it's where he gets the map and the key right so i would think exactly because i think we're gonna get the story of the map and the key i think and what's more i think that it's it's a necessary um it's necessary preliminary it seems to me anyway from a narrative standpoint to be necessary preliminary material to the entire white council debate i could see it coming up as a flashback prior to the debate or something but i i, I mean if we don't get gandalf saying 
okay, it's totally Sauron uh, in Dol Guldur, then where do the White Council's deliberations start? I mean, that's where it starts in every version that Tolkien wrote of this, when he talked about the White Council stuff, and we have, uh, you know, a fair bit of material on this uh, in Unfinished Tales, for instance. Um, Gandalf's, you know, movements to try to get the, the White Council to act um, are all premised upon the fact that he went to Dol Guldur and discovered that it really was Sauron um, who uh, is the necromancer. So I, I, that seems to me, and like the business from the, you know, the the CinemaCon showing of the, with the tombs of the Nazgul and everything, I mean, I think that that material, um, it's got to, I mean, what else does the White Council have to talk about if none of that has happened? You know, I mean, like, Seriously, are, 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 I mean, conceivably, I guess we could just get them being. I feel uneasy. You know, um, there seems to be like, you know, something wicked <laughs> afoot in Middle Earth. But don't worry, Maybe we don't should... worry, don't worry, viewers. We'll tell you about next movie. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, I think that it's. Um, yeah, you're right. Um... Because, especially since in the later versions, by which I mean Quest of Erebor and 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 you know from that, from from that time period onward, the primary drama of the White Council story. Not that Tolkien ever wrote out the entirety of that story, but we do get bits of it and scenes from it in various other things. Um, the main drama of that story is having established that it's Sauron and then them debating what to do and Gandalf Gandalf being the proactive one saying let's let's let, let's attack let's try to mess up let's figure try to try to guess what he's trying to do and mess it up and Saruman saying no let's wait let's wait let's wait um, so I, I'm, I'm kind of assuming that's what the debate in, in Rivendell is going to be like or at least you know it's going to be based on that mm -hmm. and therefore the information has to come first so I am still definitely holding out for Thrayan and the map uh, and uh, you know Gandalf's Dol Guldur reconnaissance happening somehow in film one whether it happens at the beginning whether it happens as a flashback I still think, I mean, it seems likeliest to me. It's possible, but it seems likeliest to me that that'll happen then. Yeah, I, I think I think you're probably right. Well, and, you know, we know, we you know, with, with the key and the map being flogged so assiduously by what a workshop, you know, you figure it's going to, you know, it's going to have That's a couple right. of scenes besides the unexpected party. Yeah, they got to show those on screen, <laughs> otherwise people won't buy them. Right, right. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Um, so... Uh, let's see, but there are other, one oh, last I... film, one thing. Just I want okay. I want a brief comment from you, Corey, on this. So okay. uh, um, I believe it is Philippa Boyens. Is it her? No, maybe it was Fran Walsh. I don't remember. It was one of them. I'll go look at page nine while I'm bringing this up. Um, mentions the trolls and says yeah. um, that the troll scene is important because the presence of the trolls out and about is the first, yes, Philippa Boyens, uh, is the first clue to Gandalf that something is amiss because these guys are cave trolls and cave trolls shouldn't be out wandering around. Um, that, I, is that true? Are, the, are we meant to understand that these guys are the same kinds of, like what I think she's getting at there is that these guys are of the of, of same species as the trolls we've previously seen in, um, right. uh, uh, in, 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 in the, the Fellowship of the Ring and, and, and yeah. the other films. And, and so those guys shouldn't be out wandering around, functioning independently and speaking, which makes it weird. I, that's not 
how I understand when I read the book. No. I don't take it to, to no. think that these guys are exactly the same kinds of trolls. Like, No, well, there are a couple things. First uh, is the fact that the films in general um, have tended to want to subcategorize the races of trolls and goblins much more um, precisely than Tolkien did. Um, I mean, we do get a sense, for instance, of a you know sort of ethnic difference between the Misty Mountain goblins and the the Mordor Uruks and the Urukai of Saruman. I mean, you can see when the three of them are together in the march across Rohan, there there are some differences between them. The film is much more assiduous in trying to separate those visually, which makes sense. And um, and but they introduce this idea of you know, a radical difference among them, like they barely look like the same kind of creature. Um, and they did a similar thing with trolls. And, you know, there's not really a clear sense that that's the case um, in uh, in the books. As far as the... Um, as far as the trolls in The Hobbit are concerned, um, let's see, let me... I am uh, um, trying to find the okay. Here it is. I found it. My my quotation about this uh, from the books, which is not from the Hobbit, but from the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, in the Hobbit, when they meet the trolls, this is not like a portent of doom. When they meet the trolls, I mean, it's like unfortunate. You don't want to meet trolls in the woods, but um, and the people of Rivendell are nervous about it because they don't usually come that far south. Um, but the area above Rivendell is called the Ettenmoors, the Troll Fells, for a reason, and that's because trolls live there. So it's it's not weird at all. It's not that weird to find the trolls there. It's certainly not a portent that something evil is astir in Middle-earth. Um, it's just a. Uh, it's just that like these trolls have like moved further south than usual. The line that I'm thinking of, though, which, is, which I take as a direct nod back to The Hobbit from The Fellowship of the Ring, is at the beginning of Chapter 2, in the shadow of the past, when we're, when we're being told that, uh, you know, uh, rumors of strange things were happening in the world outside that Frodo comes to hear, uh, and there's this one reference that says, uh, orcs were multiplying again in the mountains, trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. Um, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons, I take to be a direct reference back to The Hobbit. Trolls mm -hmm. were abroad, but don't think about Tom Burton Bill, because yeah, that's didn't, not what we're talking about. Were, these aren't the Cockney trolls. Right. These are not, these are not, these are not your grandfather's, or you know, your crazy uncle's Cockney trolls. Um, these are armed trolls with serious weapons and that are cunning and terrible. Um, so, again, that, in The Fellowship of the Ring is, in fact, used explicitly as part of a, like, portent that evil is astir in Middle-earth. Um, so it's not like they're taking this idea out of absolutely nowhere. Right. Um, what kind of... The, 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 the part of Philip Boyan's statement that I um, find disquieting is the business about Gandalf's first indication like he's going to be clueless until then seriously because <laughs> if that's true maybe we're not going to get the the Dol Guldur reconnaissance until later in which case what are we going to be getting what are the what the heck do the white council are the white hounds council going to be talking about i just well, i don't know no um, um this this answer has been provided for us um 
oh crap, who said it? That's the problem with the, with the questions. If you answer someone's question, their name disappears, and then you forget who asked it. Um, but somebody <laughs> proposed that perhaps the White Council was meeting to uh, to discuss, to vote, uh, to censure Radagast the Brown for his animal torture. <laughs> Sean Gunner would like that. Sean Gunner would like that. Um... <laughs> Um, <clears throat> that's. I just have this picture of Gandalf running unlikely. into the White Council room, going, "Going, there's trolls and then there hills." <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, I just, um, I don't know. Um, what's What's interesting about that 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 comment from her, though? Um, I, I I I sort of, you know, I I don't. I, <sighs> Part of me wants to go the route of, in commenting on this, part of me wants to go the route of, and this is the lady who's supposed to be the Tolkien scholar of the bunch. Right. Um, uh, which is a comment made in the the Empire article. But you know what? I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm not even going to mention that. Oh, whoops. Um, uh, thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks for your restraint there. Yes. Um, but, but actually, what's more interesting is this, this really gives us a glimpse into um, – how they're thinking about the story like this, this comment in some ways is one of the most interesting comments in that it really gives us a notion of where they're going and what how they're framing things and how they're thinking about the story um yes. uh, and and she mentions storytelling and a puzzle which i think and mentions that the world has been at peace so i think that um I think this really gives us an idea about going back to your comment about they really need to try and do some of the necromancer stuff in the first film to set it up. I, I and we've discussed this before. I think the necromancer story is really meant to be a mystery to be solved during the course of the films, as opposed to yes. in the in the book in yes. the book chronology. At this point, we're it's it, we already know. I mean, we know it's yes, the necromancer, right. and Gandalf is is doing this quest. As as sort of a, on the law on his way to Mirkwood to go do the prearranged attack that has probably been planned for years now. Um, yes, and in the quest of Erebor, he emphasizes it's a meeting of the White Council that he's going to, which is not a prearranged date to attack Dol Guldur. You know, yes. like don't be late to the sacking of Dol Guldur, but rather a meeting where it's going to be decided whether or not they're going to do that. And Gandalf is worried that if he's not there, the white council will do nothing. And so therefore he has to be there in order to get them to attack. Right. Oh, okay. So I'm actually wrong then. <laughs> well, I was interpreting but... the books as, as they, they, yeah, I was, I was thinking of the sort of the, the, the kind of typical um, middle earth uh, timeline for making decisions like this, which uh, it usually takes like years um, <laughs> decades or centuries. So, uh, so I was I was thinking maybe they were doing the same kind of timeline hey, it's compression. it's a blink of an eye for an elf. Right? Yeah, I was. Well, but, I was thinking they were they doing do the same kind of timeline compression they did with Fellowship of the Ring, where where rather than information is there though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The timeline in the books. Um, uh, Gandalf discovers that the necromancer is Sauron, and at the same time, of course, gets the map and the key from Thrain, ninety-one years exactly prior to the unexpected party. 91 years he's had that information and for 91 years and as we said last night he stuck yeah. it in his pocket he stuck it in his pocket he's been car- he, 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 and this actually um tolkien addresses this in case anyone finds it far-fetched like what seriously gandalf was carrying that map and key in his pocket for a century and pippin says in the in the, the pippin comments on it he brings it out in the open in the quest of erebor um pippin says you carried that map for a hundred years and gandalf says 91 actually <laughs> 
So anyway, um, so yes, he's been carrying around the map in his pocket for 91 years, um, and uh, and he's had this information. And the White Council—I don't know how often the White Council meets, like once every 50 years or whatever—but um, but he's been trying to convince them to act on this. Um, since then. So they haven't decided to act yet. So now I agree it could be sort of a compression thing, but again, and we've, we've, we've been over this before, and I still don't understand. Where on earth, when on earth, is Gandalf's reconnaissance supposed to happen? Uh, I, I mean, yeah. after they separate? Uh, so, like, you know, Gandalf goes, you know, meets with the White Council and Rivendell on the way, and, and they decide, hey, let's jolly well find out what the heck is going on, and Gandalf is like, cheerio, that sounds like a great idea. So he goes off with the dwarves and Bilbo and they go through Misty Mountains and get chased around by goblins for an hour and a half and then they emerge and then eagles take them somewhere to an undisclosed location and the film ends and then at that point, so okay, then after this we go to Bjorn, now Gandalf leaves the company, they go in through Mirkwood and have to take their jolly sweet time getting kidnapped by spiders in order to allow Gandalf to what? Go, go to Dol Guldur, discover that it's Sauron the Necromancer, come back to some other place, Lorien maybe, that would be more convenient, uh, and say, hey guys, guess what? It's the Necromancer. And them to be like, hey, let's uncharacteristically act instantaneously upon this information and turn around and attack Dol Guldur, all still while we're captives of the Elven King, I guess, up in North Mirkwood. And then finally, and then like after that, Gandalf's like, now I've got to rush off to the Battle of Five Armies. I mean, that's a tight uh, timetable, as they would say in England. And, I and you didn't even take a breath. <laughs> Well, Gandalf's not going to have time to, that's for sure. Well, you know, you know what this is starting to look like? And and for the record, this is one of the things I hate most about the Two Towers. This is starting to look like the, the Ent um, um, timeline where Pippin and Merry meet up with, with Treebeard, and he's like, you know, oh, we're not going to do anything. And then he, and right. then they meet together, and they decide, to, eh, you know, then the Ents, Ents have a, a, a record short meeting to discuss this, decide to do nothing. He's like, here, I'll drop you off. And then he stumbles across um, yes. <laughs> Orthonk yes. somehow. He's like, oh, look, there's Isengard. Whoa, what's going on there? Gets mad, calls the other Ents, yes. who who apparently were following along, just, you know. Or just... can teleport. <laughs> right, yeah, can tell. Who just, yeah. you know, he's like, hey, that's terrible. Look what, look what Saruman's doing. I should call the other guys and we should attack. And they materialize out of thin air and start attacking. I wonder if right. that's what's going to happen here. Gandalf's going to sneak in, figure out what's going on, say, oh my gosh, we really need to do something about this. I better call the White Council. Well, there they are. Great. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. And here at least they have a slight geographic excuse in that, again, Lorien is fairly close. So yes, if, true. If, if Elrond and Saruman come down to Lorien while Gandalf is... In which case, why the heck are they traveling together? They're going almost to the same place. Anyway, um, oh, they, they have to explain why they don't go through the Misty Mountains with them. Yes, right. Since they're all going to the same place. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, goodness knows we've seen before that in this kind of compression in the films, uh, they are willing to do a certain amount of hand-waving to explain why things... I mean, like to me the biggest I mean you're absolutely right and I agree with you that moment with Treebeard is my number one least favorite part of the films um, from a 
narrative standpoint. I just I, I feel like it doesn't make much sense at all. The second thing is that, uh, but what the the hand waving I was just talking about though is the like how we get Gandalf to Orthanc in the Fellowship of the Ring thing, you know, where Gandalf is just like, I'm not going to really give any sufficient excuse for leaving you in the lurch right now when you're in deadly peril, and instead riding thousands of miles away in an opposite direction be, on the hope that perhaps. Uh, Saruman might be able to help me in some unforeseen way, like that maybe if I go f hundreds of miles away, I will be in a better position to help you than if I just stay with you. I mean, just the more you look at it, the less sense it makes. Um, but, you know, I mean, it kind of works on film, so well, uh, I, could, I, I could imagine that kind of transition, Kelly Tapita has proposed a solution, Corey. The Eucatastrophe button. The Eucatastrophe button. Oh, I, oh, by the way, I want to hi, Kelly. This is Ke <laughs> Kelly, former student of mine and my children's former babysitter, <laughs> Kelly. Um, yes, there could be a Eucatastrophe button. That would be useful. Um, kind of like, um, it's kind of like the the easy button for for what is it? Staples. <laughs> <laughs> no, what it, what it's more like is the is the actual Eucatastrophe button from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> right. The War in the North. War in the North. Oh, the War in the North. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. That's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Gandalf pulls out his Xbox 360 controller, hits a complicated <laughs> button right. combination, and and uh, Elrond and Gladriel swoop in and destroy the target. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, that's that. I hope that doesn't happen. But anyway, it's <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Chris does point out that uh, you know Galadriel and Elrond uh, were in the first film doing some kind of long distance telepathy thing. I mean, we we do have precedent. At, you know, that might be an Elf... effect of the ring, by the way. You know, those the Elven rings. That's an interesting right, one. Right, right. Conceivably, time. so uh, you know, we could we. we it, it it is at least plausible that Gandalf could send out some kind of telepathic call to the White Council. Um, not plausible that they could travel instantaneously, but whatever. Um, you know, we'll we'll sort of see about that. I mean, I guess fitting it into the narrative is for me the hard thing, and mm -hmm. I do really hope that. Um, well, we'll see. Um, the one thing I want to I want to make one perilous comment uh, here, Dave, because I can't stop myself, uh, on your Philippa Boyan's comment. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if this is, if this, uh, I'm not sure if the thing I'm about to say is further criticism or if it's a defense of her. We'll see how it comes out when I say it. But, <laughs> but the, one, the one thing that I will say, um, it is, not, I, I, I do not believe that Philippa Boyan, you know, you, you were sort of, you were implying, admitted Dave, you were implying that although she's supposed to be like this uh, Tolkien, uh, you know, this the, the Tolkien scholar among them, uh, that she doesn't seem to know what she's talking about. And I would posit that it is not ignorance, but the thing that does at times kind of uh, get to me a little bit when I'm hearing her talk, like in the commentaries and the, um, the documentaries and things in the Lord of the Rings films, is that she will, well, I would characterize it as skipping steps. Like, it is one thing to say, here's what the books say. Here's my interpretation of what the books say. Here is my adaptation, my the, cho the, ad the adaptation choices that I made in going from book to interpretation to adaptation. Here are the choices that I made. She skips steps there. Yeah, and I completely agree, actually. Talk as if the things that she is, like the choices that she has made, the way she, are there. 
in the books. Yes. Like, you know, and, 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 and what's more, she also sometimes has that sort of air of saying like, and as is perfectly obvious and anybody who knows the books, even a little bit could tell you <clears throat> that this is a fact. Um, and that's it, the, that's the one criticism that I would offer there. Well, you know, I, and actually I, I'll even, def- I'll defend her even more. There's nothing to suggest when she's answering this question, she, she says, um, uh, they shouldn't have been there, Boyens points out, uh, the sequence where Thorin's merry band encounter three crabby ogre types intent on at it, blah, 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 blah. Cave trolls have come down from the mountain. That shouldn't happen. That's one of the first warnings from Gandalf. There's nothing to indicate that she's saying, this is how I read the book. Right. She's, right. it could right. be, if this weren't, if this were a, sc- a screenwriter, um, uh, talking about any other movie that's not a book adaptation, we wouldn't understand that person to be referring to some external right. source. We'd understand them to be referring to their own story or script. She's probably referring to her script and her story. Now, right. I don't know to what degree she has confused her story with the book. I don't know if she's keeping those things separate or not. That's not clear from here. But but I should probably be charitable and assume that she's um, a smart enough person to not have them confused. Uh, but but right. yeah, there's no reason well, to think she's actually referring to the book here. She's probably referring to her story. And if that's the story she's chosen to tell, uh, it's not unreasonable and it seems perfectly consistent with what they're trying to get at. Right. No, and I still, and you know, and perhaps again, this is sort of my own ignorance. It's how I would do it. Whenever I made statements like that, I mm-hmm. would, I would always want to preface it a little bit more clearly. Yeah. Um, because when you make a statement about Tolkien's story, you know, when you say, you know, something like in the Hobbit this happens, or, you know, uh, like this is what. Get, I would just I, I would always feel very self-conscious if I were writing an adaptation, um, which after listening to this show for several months, most people would probably hope I never do. Um, but if I were to be writing an adaptation of Tolkien's story, I would always want to hedge it about with that kind of clarification um, to 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 differentiate between. Uh, the the story that I was adapting and the story that I'm telling. Although again, in fairness to her, you might well make that, and then when you looked at your interview in Empire Magazine, find that it's been removed. <laughs> Fair exactly, enough. that's what I was thinking. She may yeah. have done that, and the guy's like, "Oh, I'm not going to include that in the article." Yeah, yeah. Oh God, splitting hairs. Jeez. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, true enough. True enough. Again, the only reason I comment on it is that I have her say that sort of thing in the documentary. Yes. But it's fine. It's fine. I'm not going to try to get too worried about it. We are almost like totally running out of time to talk about the Rings of Power. Um, No, although I I, I did want to – Actually, Dave – I don't know if you noticed in the notes, Corey, but my my 10 a.m. Pacific time thing has been canceled, so I don't have a hard stop anymore. I mean we shouldn't shouldn't go on forever, but – We shouldn't go on forever, but okay. We have – I think we should. I think let's go on. Yeah. Let's just start a continuous podcast from now until one of these the days. We're just going to cut out. loose, you know. Pretty soon, as we get closer to the film, we're just going to be like, "All right, we're actually just not going to stop talking until the film comes out." Twenty-four-seven, right? We're, we're, we're going to have like a six-consecutive-day podcast. Well, let's um, um, all riddles in the dark all the time. I, I do have a couple I'll of points I want to make from another article. Let's um, if, uh, just if, briefly, if, Trish. If, so let me do um, that. Let's let's skate over the the film two stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I actually would like to make points from another art from a different yeah, article. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few. Yeah. I don't. Re- yeah. Let's yeah. let's skate over the this, the film two. There were some interesting um, uh, points made in an article on Collider.com, um, mm-hmm. a Hobbit 
set, and I won't go through all of the ones I have listed here, but uh, there is the one about that's pertinent to today uh, where he talks about uh, the effects of the ring on Bilbo, and he yeah. says the effects of the ring will gradually build up over the course of the Hobbit movies. Jackson says, so the first time he puts it on, it's simply a magic ring, but each time he puts it on, the effect of it gets to him a bit more. Now hold on to that one because we'll yeah. get to that when we're going to get to the shank of our of our show. The other the other ones I thought were kind of interesting is that McKellen Ian McKellen says a couple things. One is this I thought this was interesting. He says he doesn't make much of a connection between Gandalf the Gray and Gandalf the White, and that he never really warmed up to the White. He says the Gray is full of all sorts of life, and then he goes on to say that he thinks the script of the Hobbit makes Gandalf a bit less bossy than he is in the book. <laughs> So that's interesting. That's interesting. And the other, last one is the point gets made in this article that dwarf kingdoms are designed in a way that overcompensates for their short stature. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, those are the three I kind of wanted to pull from that to highlight. Yeah, but that is um, interesting. The bossy Gandalf <laughs> is 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 actually that I find. Um, I find kind of interesting, and I sort of wonder how that's going to come across on the film. That is, I mean, again, thinking about Dave's comments about actors before, um, you know, Ian McKellen could very well have in his mind less bossy. Um, will it necessarily come across in exactly that way in the film as it's going to be cut and presented? But, but you know, assuming it is, I find it interesting because Gandalf in The Quest of Erebor is much more bossy. I mean, the the whole... The, oh, the, yeah. the biggest change between Gandalf in the published Hobbit and Gandalf, the later Gandalf, especially the later Quest of Erebor Gandalf, the Gandalf in retrospect, um, when you change the situation, as the situation was changed with the writing of the Lord of the Rings, when now all of a sudden Gandalf is coming into this knowing that this is one small chapter in the overall story of, of Middle-earth and like the main deal here is Sauron is taking shape and we've got to figure out some way to thwart him. Gandalf is worried that, uh, that Sauron is going to try to attack Lorien or Rivendell while they're still vulnerable and before they can defend themselves. And he's trying to figure... So, you know, for him, the whole... Quest of Erebor is only ever a sideline. One way in which he might be able to thwart one of Sauron's plots, which would be to use the dragon to attack Rivendell. So, uh, you know, so basically, this the, the the Gandalf that we get in the Quest of Erebor is a Gandalf with the weight of the world on his shoulders, who sees this whole thing, knows what's going to happen. Very few other people see it yet, or are mobilized to try to stop it yet. And him being like at the end of his rope. So, I mean, he's really chippy with Thorin. Um, you know, when Thorin is being all haughty and, and looking down on Bilbo and everything, Gandalf is, like, at the end of his rope and, and you know, trying to get him to do, you know, to fall into line and to help, um, since Gandalf is trying to help him anyway. So so I, that's actually, to me, a very interesting shift, um, if they choose to make Gandalf sort of lighthearted in some way. And it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder thinking about sort of Gandalf's character arc in this movie, because it's something we actually haven't talked about too much. Um, but of course Gandalf does have a very significant character arc in the Lord of the Rings films, as of yes. course you have the, you know, the return of Gandalf the White and everything else. Um, and I presume with three films uh, involving Gandalf, and especially fairly centrally involving Gandalf in the White Council plot in addition to his role in the quest and return in the battle of five armies, I assume we're going to be getting some kind of distinct character arc 
for Gandalf. He's not just going to be a static figure, I presume, uh, throughout all of that. And so, you know, I wonder how they're going to be doing that. And so maybe we will get, at the beginning, Gandalf starting off in ignorance and being kind of a happy-go-lucky guy and then sort of becoming more and more aware of what's going on and, you know, becoming more serious and... Uh, I don't know if he gets bossier or not, but but anyway, that does really sort of lead me to wonder about that. Because hmm. isn't that isn't that part of the? I mean, that's that's sort of an element of the comedic tone of the Hobbit. Gandalf constantly talking down to the dwarves and Bilbo. Yeah, I mean, being it's, this kind it's... of caustic, grumpy old man. It's like, you yeah, know, I'm really getting yeah, tired I mean... of babysitting you guys and and <laughs> right. saving your butts. Yeah, I mean, the, the the kind of, he is kind of arch, you know, like when he comes back and saves them from the trolls, and uh, they say, where were you? And he says, uh, he says you know, he says, yeah, they, they say, where did you disappear to? And he says, I was looking ahead. And they say, well, what brought you back in the nick of time? Looking behind, he says. Yes. Um, you know, there's, yeah, there's... Real smart-ass. Some... <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> well, but, but in a fairly kind of condescending way. This is kind of yeah. similar to... This is similar to comments you've made about the Lord of the Rings films in that when you're reading Tolkien's writing, the characters we're meant to relate to, the characters who really have arcs, are the hobbits. And everybody else tend to be sort of mythic, archetypal characters. And I think that's true here... To an extent, you know, we relate to some of the dwarves, but Gandalf definitely not meant to be a relatable character here. Gandalf is sort of this, no. he, he's he's like you said, he's archer, he's like a meta character in that he's really sort of uh, guiding Bilbo along in his character development, in his arc. And once again, what what the filmmakers are doing is turning him into an actual human character. So he's, uh, he's not going to be the sort of bossy kind of commenting on Frodo, uh, or on Bilbo's journey, but rather actually participating in it. He's going to be scared and uncertain. We've seen the scenes with Galadriel and things yes. like that. So yeah, especially that kind of thing. I mean, that kind of you know Gandalf sort of looking, uh, you know, almost but not quite at the camera. You know, you know <laughs> he gives he he gives me courage. You know, is exactly the kind of thing that Gandalf and the Hobbit never would have said. Even though Gandalf and the <laughs> Hobbit is certainly is certainly vulnerable. I mean, he 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 is much more vulnerable than Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, I mean, in that he almost is killed by the wolves and goblins, um, and would have been killed had it not been for the eagles. So, um, anyway, yeah, it's. I, I do suspect that 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 they are going to be doing that, and we'll see kind of how that ends up, how the whole revelation of the necromancer as Sauron kind of plays into that. Mm-hmm. But we probably should transition to... Uh, I was just um, going to do that. Wait, wait, wait. The, I was just going to do to the that. Brinks. Wait, a couple other things, though. Just some okay, things to okay, touch okay. on. Um, so so Film 2 stuff that is that is all but confirmed to be moved there. Toriel, Gandalf at Dol Guldur. Um, uh, uh, and that, that brings up your question, Corey, of when will we get to see him sneaking in? Um, uh, and, and also I, the question I always have is that Gandalf at Dol Guldur thing, is that a flashback to an earlier sneak in or is that him doing it contemporaneous with events of the Hobbit? Who knows? Um, on our speaking animals thing, I think we actually nailed the spiders 
Because we said all along that we didn't think that the we thought maybe the spiders would not be actually physically speaking, but might be an effect right. of the ring allowing Bilbo to understand them somehow. And that's Peter Jackson all but says that says the speaker the spiders will essentially be kind of speaking psychically. Uh, yes. And can I say, actually, this strikes me as a very kind of typical thing. Um, that is one of the things that I I think we can see um, the filmmaking team doing at a couple points in The Lord of the Rings is picking up on a really stray mention in Tolkien, often like something which... Um, you know, like for instance, uh, the biggest example that I can think of is the arrival of the elves at Helm's Deep. Of course, Gimli and Legolas do have that conversation where Legolas is like, "I wish I had a bunch of my kinsfolk here." Uh, you know, they, they're they're good archers among the Rohirrim, but boy, what I wouldn't give for a whole big like a battalion of of elven archers to show up right now. And of course, it doesn't happen. But but that reference is there, right? And so like that 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 reference of something which is not true and does not occur gets kind of taken up into the actual film story. And there is a similar moment when Sam first puts on the ring in the pass of Kirith Ungol and he hears Shagrat and Gorbag talking. Um, Sam suspects that it's the power of the ring that gives him understanding of speech. Or perhaps, or understanding uh, of the speech of, of the, the of the, of the, the creatures of the enemy, or perhaps just understanding. And I believe the implication is that that's actually not true. That it doesn't, in fact, do that. Um, but Sam has that one brief thought where he says, "Oh, I wonder if the ring gives me comprehension of speech." Uh, and so the idea that they would kind of seize upon that and be like, yeah, hey, the ring gives him the power to understand speech. So they only read that far and then stopped and went <laughs> well, see, back to the script. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, in, 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 in saying that, I'm not saying that they're like getting it wrong, bad readers or yeah, getting it wrong. No, rather they, rather th they said there's the kernel of the idea there and, and yeah. maybe maybe Tolkien, as we read the book, intend for us to not think that's true. Although I got to be honest, whenever I read that part, I assume that Sam's correct. But but they're looking and saying that's a useful device for our purposes in right. making the film. Right. And even like, you know, that, that was still that was my reaction Boy, to the really Elves at Helm's Deep. You know, I was like, uh, I know I was just thinking, boy, you guys have really gone wussed, wussed out. <laughs> <laughs> No, but the thing is, I can see the point. I yeah, yeah I can too. I can see the point. Because, no, I mean, that was, that was my first reaction when the elves showed up at Helm's Deep. I laughed. And I was like, hey, it's like a wish fulfillment dream, you know? I mean, like, this is what Legolas w like wanted to happen. I mean, honestly, my, 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 my reaction when I saw that, I was like, wait, where are the dwarves? Are the dwarves coming too? Like, is Gimli going to get his wish also? <laughs> you know? Like, this is awesome. <laughs> it was really funny. Uh, but... um. But anyway, yeah, no, so exactly, the, you know, this the concept is there. And so I, the sense that I have of them is that uh, that rather than just make, if, if they have a choice, um, rather than making something up totally out of whole cloth and imposing it upon the story, they, they do tend to sort of mine any of these kinds of things that are there. Even if it's just, if the concept is raised, even if it's not executed, um, they, they 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 tend to go there rather than simply making up something that's wholly alien to it. On the one hand, I can certainly appreciate that perspective if 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 I'm right about that. On the other hand, sometimes it's a little bit silly and I find it comical. 
uh, in ways in which it was presumably not intended to be comical. But um, but you know that's it's there it is. So 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 Trish, I will be I will be firm enough in saying that I do think that sometimes it's fairly silly. Um, but oh, uh, but yeah, I mean. I, I, my other favorite example of this, by the way, is like that, uh, like hideous white elephant man orc guy who's leading the battle at um, Minas Tirith in the Return of the King. Um, which to me, I don't even know if they had this reference in mind, but it was all I could think of when I first saw that uh, saw that guy. Is the the line that Tolkien gave the intro line to the appearance of the Witch King when the Witch King uh, is coming back when he leaves the gate uh, where he's confronting Gandalf and comes and uh, swoops in to attack Theoden. Um, you know, Tolkien leads in with, but it was no brigand or orc chieftain who was leading the armies. <laughs> It was the Witch King, right? And then as soon as I saw that guy giving commands in the film, I'm like, hey, look, it's a brigand and orc chieftain who's leading the armies. Turns out it is, after all. And I, I just thought that was hilarious. Um, but like I said, I don't even know. I don't, I don't. I don't know if they remembered that line at all when they were doing that. But I thought it was funny. Um, and uh, so you know, like again, like this, so so this kind of thing, like to to you know, for them to be like, hey, the O-ring gives understanding of languages. Like, well, I don't think it does, but okay, cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see that. So basically, that's that's why I would not be shocked uh, to find that. And frankly, I think it's a good device. I mean, having the spiders somehow articulate English um, would just I, that would be too. I mean, it's, yeah. it's it's a little bit discordant in the book, um, if you think about it. Though the sort of the style and the comedy of the book it doesn't. I mean, it's not hard to get into it. Um, on screen, it would look. I mean, having these huge and scary spiders saying what the uh, what the spiders say in the book, which is <laughs> it, that wouldn't work at all. Um, so having him kind of understand them and have nobody else understand them, that all seems. I, I think that that yeah. seems to be a really good compromise. Um, yeah. Yep, I agree. But I'm just glad. I'm seeing this movie with you, Corey. You'll make me laugh. That's my most upsetting points. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know. is, it's it certainly is more and more. I think about it. The more <clears throat> I think it was, uh, it was not only wise but really um, uh, charitable and generous of us to arrange uh, to see the Hobbit film in a private screening because yes. uh, most true. of us individually will be a public menace. Yeah, I know. Boy, and, and they should be glad that they don't get people like us in the, um, in the focus groups of the early screenings of these films. <laughs> otherwise they, otherwise they'd be getting hacked to death. They'd be like, um, the audience is laughing at that scene. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's not the reaction yeah. we were looking for at all. <laughs> right. Exactly. God, it'd probably be like jury selection. You know, we'd get totally thrown out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. It, How much early? Be. Tell us it a little really bit about be. what podcast you listen to. I'm an avid listener. Yeah. Tolkien professor. You're out. Uh, he's out. Yeah. Disqualified. So okay. So, so we really should get on. Are the you guys ready split. to shoot? No, not just oh. yet. Because there's there's <laughs> there's some big there's actually some really big matters that are that I just want to touch on and then we can either talk about them or we can skip over them. But so okay. see, this is great. Dave has been Dave has been parched for Tolkien stuff. Yes. <laughs> so we need to yes. let him. Well, it's just some of these yes. things I just know. These are things that the listeners would want us to comment on, and I know Corey wants to probably put in his two cents. Um, uh, Martin Freeman, um, 
and, and some of the other actors in the article mentioned that they're returning to shoot in May. I presume May 2013. Um, and... One of the so so one interesting thing is Martin Freeman mentions that they might be shooting some bridging scenes, so some scenes for sort of uh, um, bridging between films, presumably between the second and third film, since the first film will all be out by then. But more important, apparently they didn't. Apparently, despite their their super efficiency and the amount of time they had to film, apparently they didn't film very much of the Battle of Five Armies yet. And apparently there's a lot of Battle of Five Armies stuff. Like, on page 13, they're talking about this. And actually, maybe I should just find the quote. But there's two Actually, I've seen of, that elsewhere. Other people of, have said that, too. Yeah, there's two. Have said that they haven't. There's, like, two huge things that they haven't filmed. Um, let's see. Here it is. So they're doing supplementary filming. But with resources, blah, 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 blah. The only thing anyone is sure of is that they really hadn't got to grips with the Battle of Five Armies before principal photography concluded in July. So that is bound to play a large role in the production to come. So they actually still have a lot of Battle of Five Armies to film, including, I'm pretty sure, uh, Thorin's death scene. Because they asked Richard Armitage if he'd shot his most poignant scene yet, and he said, no, not yet. Solemnly. God, that's almost like all of movie three, I would assume. Yeah. I mean, so a big they, chunk of it. Anyway. They haven't shot movie three yet, basically. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, the major thing, the, the other major thing that would be there is the, is the, the Lake Town stuff and the death of Smaug. Mm-hmm. So, um, and no one's referring to that. So maybe they have shot that. Yes. Um, in fact, I would, I would expect that from those uh, shots of Lake Town that, that leaked and then were shut down. Um, the ones that included uh, shots of the mayor of, of the, you know, the, the, the master of Lake town. Um, I would, uh, I would assume that they've shot the death of Smaug, but, uh, but yeah, no, it does sound like quite, quite, quite a lot of material there. Um, very interesting. And I, I wonder, my big question is, does this mean that their conception of that is going to evolve in any way? Um, how is it going to be influenced? Yeah, I don't know. Get, given mean, I, I, given I, the way their concept of the whole trilogy has evolved over the last six months, where where it, to read the article, it sounds like they were in the middle of shooting and kind of just you know just started saying like, hmm, let's do an, let's do a thought experiment. Suppose we were to turn this into a trilogy. Boy, we really like that. We should go ask the producers if we can do that. It seems right. that they would be. Uh, unable to resist the temptation over the next six months to start say, especially after the first film comes out, to say, "Boy, people really ate up these action scenes. Maybe we should add some more <laughs> of that in for Battle of the Five Armies." Yada yada yada. Right, right. And, yeah, I mean, especially if they're not going to film it until after the first film is out. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one last thing, Corey. Well, it, it helps the role-playing game industry a lot if they <laughs> yes. do a lot of action. <laughs> um, one last thing, Corey. Did you see what they said they're going to do? Aerial battles between eagles and vampire oh, bats. Oh, right. And vampire bats. I did see that. <laughs> I did see that. Um, I, I think that's kind of fun. Uh, I, I, that's, uh, that's a serious throwback is what that is. Um, because the bats, of course, the bats in, are there in the published Hobbit. We get a cloud of bats flying over... The goblin armies uh, so thickly that they are uh, that they are obscuring the sun, and then you get uh, a, a reference. The only references that stick, uh, no pun intended, uh, from the bats is that when they come and they attach themselves vampire-like to the stricken, uh, <clears throat> so they are like feeding on the wounded, 
uh, on the battlefield, which is modestly awful, but uh, we don't get much of a sense of them having a very substantive impact on the battle. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the manuscript of it, um, which I was just discussing uh, with my Mythgard class last week, um, there are more references to the bats in the first draft of the Battle of Five Armies um, scene in the manuscript and it talks about them attacking the archers and stuff, so that basically the the um, the bats are deployed in the battle as primarily to try to neutralize the elven archers uh, who are up on the slopes of the mountain and shooting down at the goblins in the valley, which makes a lot of sense. Um, the idea that of <laughs> that the bats could take on the eagles in any sense uh, is kind of interesting, and and would seem to suggest that we're talking about giant freaking bats here. Um, and if that's the case. That's a serious throwback um, because we do get giant bats in Tolkien, but we don't get, but we only get giant bats in really early versions. We uh, Thurin Gwethil, yes, who's Thurin Gwethil the Vampire, which means disappointingly Thurin Gwethil the Vampire Bat um, is the major messenger of Sauron um, in the early version of the the Lay of Lathian material of the L Baron and Luthien stuff. Um, it is Thurin Gwethil's. Uh, form that Luthien takes when they go into uh, to to attack Morgoth when she and uh, Baron go into Thangorodrim. So there are giant vampire bats back in the day. I mean, predating the Hobbit. Um, you know, back in like the Book of Lost Tales time, um, there we you know the, the the concept of giant evil bats um, is there in Tolkien's writing now. Are, you know, is Philip Aboyans reading the Book of Lost Tales and wanting to recover bats from there? Did they get around back to that in a more indirect way? Is that, in fact, what we're going to see, gigantic bats? Um, I don't know. I, uh, uh, but it's, that's, that's interesting. I would not have guessed that. And if they do use those from the Book of Lost Tales, there's n they're certainly not going to be mentioning that to any media person. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they're certainly not. Um, but uh, I think yeah, they'll yeah, I think I, they'll they'll refer to uh, uh, Thurin Gwethel by name. Yeah, yeah, um, and no. No, no. Lawsuits. Andy Lawsuits. Higgins. Andy Higgins says Book of Lost Tales in the movie is his thesis subject. <laughs> well, Good Book Lord, of Lost Andy. Tales is his thesis subject, so he would be delighted to see Book of Lost Tales. He's in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope you. Yeah, I hope Andy, you don't talk too much about it in the movie. I mean, that could be trouble, right? <laughs> I just, just in. I, I, I will say in general, I don't know what how they're going to do this, but, but on the whole, I, I find the idea fairly exciting. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. it's. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it has a chance to be awful of course but um but 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 it is interesting i mean it, and and it's it is in several ways a kind of a logical expansion on the material that's there in the book and there is precedent for it uh giant bats are indeed <laughs> native to tolkien's world uh though they went extinct a long time ago <laughs> they went extinct back in the book of lost tales and haven't been cited since uh, i mean tolkien dropped giant bats back in the 20s i mean i don't think I'm trying to remember if in the Lay of Lathian, the epic poem of version of Baron and Luthien that he was writing in the late 20s, early 30s, if there are still any gigantic bats. And the only one I think of is when Thu the Sorcerer, who is, of course, Sauron, um, 
flies off, he takes the form of a, of a giant bat. But that's obviously not a real giant bat. That's that's that's. Billy makes a good point. Bat. I wonder if the name Foo is going to show up in the movie. Wouldn't that be interesting? No, probably um, not. You know, Billy, if the I, huge props, huge props. If they do that, if Thu or Thurin Guethil gets mentioned in the film, uh, I will, I will, like my respect will grow enormously. Um, yeah, but don't I, you think that would like Lawsuit City for sure would show up then? It's like well, it depends. They don't really have rights to that name. Do they you? don't have rights to Thurin Guethil, that's for sure. But again, like, yeah. what are the well, what's, anyway. what's what would constitute fair use? I mean, just using the name, you know. I Maybe don't they know. just transpose the first letters of each name, you know, make it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Guru and Thethel. I wasn't even gonna try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. Um, yeah, now Kate, uh, Kate Neville points out that they don't necessarily have to be giant bats if there are enough of them. The birds, uh, the, the birds in the uh, Hitchcock film were no bigger than ordinary birds, and they wrought much havoc. Uh, so we could have, yes, like uh, the bats, <laughs> right? And Because uh, there certainly were enough of them uh, to, uh, to – but attacking the eagles, that's the thing that I have a hard time, seeing them as – uh, normal-sized bats attacking en masse and therefore having a real impact on the soldiers on the ground, I can easily see. Um, uh, the idea of an enormous eagle soaring down through the air and being bothered by any number of tiny little bats is a little harder for me to imagine. Um, but, you know, it's possible. We'll it's see. It's possible. Okay. Yeah. All okay. right, so now... You ready mm -hmm. now? Go for it. We're crying out loud. Okay. Now, as far as okay. the one hey. is concerned. Oh, wait, sorry. You're going to interrupt me again? What? Oh, oh well, nope. I did have just one thing I wanted to say before you started. <laughs> about the rings. About okay. the rings. About the rings. Okay. okay? okay. Because okay. I thought of this when you guys were talking earlier about Fellowship of the Ring. And, Corey, you and I were talking before we went live about the – I actually had brought up the thing about, you know, did they ever mention in the movie that the dwarves had rings? They did, didn't they? In the very, very beginning in that yep. prologue. That, yep. That in the, the prologue. Does, right? In the prologue, yeah, okay. yes. The seven rings for the dwarves so, are there. Yeah, so we have talked about that. Okay, that's all I wanted to say. So yep. you go yep. right in. Oh, exactly. So, okay, so the the one ring, you know, Jackson has more or less addressed how he's going to. I think that a couple of the major questions that we've had, um, he has indicated how they're going to go. One is <clears throat> to what extent is he going to make the one ring an obviously corruptive force in the film? Is are, is Bilbo going to be affected by it in ways in which he's not in the books? Certainly. Um, that is in the Hobbit book. He's not. But, uh, and Jackson has said something which seems to me entirely sensible, which is that um, the, uh, in the films, Bilbo is going to be affected a little, you know, sort of progressively. He'll be a little bit more affected by it each time. Um, the difficulty with this is it kind of, I mean, if, if that's the sort of trajectory, if over the course of these three films, you know, over the course of this one year, the ring is affecting him more and more and more than like what it, we would expect him to already look like Gollum 60 years later. But anyway, whatever. I, I think we can ignore that. Um, so the fact that it's going to have sort of a small and gradual impact seems to me to make sense. The other question was, how is it going? how are they going to depict the experience of wearing the ring? Of course, for Frodo in the films, the experience of wearing the rings was fairly unusual, um, not only in the fact that he is being given this sort of psychedelic access to, you know, visual access to the spirit world, um, as with the encounter with the ring wraiths on Weathertop, but also that he... 
you know, is exposed to Sauron and sees the eye from a distance and gets the creepy voiceover and all that. Um, and Jackson has pretty much said that that latter is not going to happen, and the rationale is simply going to be that Sauron's not yet, you know, alert. You know, that Sauron isn't... Uh, um, is not since he hasn't really returned to power yet, um, he's not really searching for the ring yet, and so therefore that effect isn't going to happen. Um, so okay, now this still doesn't answer for me some very simple premises about what, how is it going to appear on like the invisibility mechanically? How are they going to do that on film? I don't think I haven't seen anything that's really answered that question for me yet, but. Uh, um, but anyway, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not too bothered about that. So I think the ring of, the, you know, the 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 finding of the One Ring and the Ring of Power. I think you know they have certainly with Gollum, they have enough to work with of the audience's uh, understanding of things from the Lord of the Rings films to just be able to foreshadow that in some fairly subtle ways and not worry too much about it. To me, the one of the more interesting question in approaching this first film is the question of the Dwarven Rings. And this, of course, hinges back on something that we've already talked about, um, and which, unfortunately, my uh, uh, my confidence has been slightly undermined by Philippa Boyens' comments about the trolls, I have to admit. But if we get the encounter with Thran in the first film... Um, the, of course, the big deal when Thran, when Gandalf meets Thran in the pits of Dol Guldur, he is he gets the ring in the or not the ring he gets the key and the map from him, of course, but uh, that's all that's mentioned in the Hobbit book. But of course, later on when he comes back to this, um, the really big deal, uh, the biggest deal of all to Thran is that his ring has been taken from him. The last of the seven rings was owned by Thorin's family. The House of Durin still held one of the Seven Rings. Thror had it. He gave it to Thran before Thror went back to Moria, which was not a good idea. Uh, neither of them turned out to be a good idea. Then Thran takes it with him when he tries to get back to Erebor and is captured by the Necromancer. And it is thus in the pits of Dol Guldur that Sauron takes back the last of the Seven Rings. And so finally, his long-standing recall order on the Seven Rings of Power is finally fulfilled. Now, um, in the Quest of Erebor, again, when Tolkien revisits the, the Hobbit story from the Lord of the Rings perspective, he really emphasizes the presence and the significance of the Dwarven Ring, especially to Thran personally. And when Gandalf recounts in the Quest of Erebor account, when Gandalf recounts his meeting with Thran, what he emphasizes is that Fran, Thran just keeps talking about the ring, the last of the seven, the last of the seven, um, you know, that what he is really focused on is the fact that he has lost his ring. Um, and we should also remember, <clears throat> going back one step further to ring lore uh, from that we are told in the Lord of the Rings, uh, the significance of the seven rings of power is that they are a kind of a middle ground between the nine and the three. The nine rings, of course, were, were designed by Sauron and made to bring the, uh, the, the nine human wielders under his dominion, and they become the ring wraiths and his slaves. The three rings, of course, were not made by Sauron and were, <clears throat> and were not controlled by him and were still usable for good, even though there are implications that 
that good is still kind of compromised and that they are at least vulnerable to the one ring. The seven are in the middle and they also like the nine rings, they were made by Sauron. So they are, they, they have their roots in Sauron's evil plans to try to ensnare people. But uh, what, Tolkien says about them in the Lord of the Rings is that the nine rings basically failed. I mean, I just, you know, made my standard joke about Sauron's recall order because that's what he does. The nine rings don't work. They don't make the dwarves into little dwarf wraiths, um, which is what his plan had been. But um, the dwarves themselves turn out to be not susceptible to wraithification. And so, um, <clears throat> so the rings don't work the way that Sauron intended. They do bring about evil. What they do is they tend to make the dwarves, they amplify the dwarves' greediness and their lust for gold. Um, and, but they do also give power. And the primary power that the, that the dwarven rings seem to have is somehow to help the dwarves get rich, to help them to amass treasure. I don't know quite exactly how that works, but we're told that at the, at the heart of each of the major dwarf hordes of old, there was a ring. Um, and so the, 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 this means, therefore, that the horde of Thror, the piece <coughs> of treasure upon which Smaug is sitting, is a consequence of the ring of power. So the, the, the sort of uh, 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 the, the lustful desire that is um, inspired by the horde in Thorin in The Hobbit is attributed to the power of the dragon, um, that this is the power of gold on which a, a dragon has long brooded. But another layer is put onto that through the Lord of the Rings, that in addition, that the, the very root of that horde, the very origin of it, is in the questionable power of one of the dwarven, one of the seven dwarven rings of power in the first place. So that in one sense, Smaug's coming to claim it is not so much a transformation of the horde from something benevolent or neutral into something uh, dangerous and sinister um, is not so much a transformation than like a fulfillment of its destiny or like an amplification of what it already was or was at risk of becoming through the influence of the Dwarven Ring of Power. So my question is basically how much of any of this is going to be involved? The rings, of course, obviously provide the one of the clearest links between the Hobbit story and the Lord of the Rings story. And the possibility of being able to involve the dwarf ring in some way, either as part of the backdrop to the Hobbit story or as part of the plot itself, seems to me to be, you know, certainly available uh, for the filmmakers to kind of deal with. Um, so how are they going to deal with that? How are, are they going to bring that in at all? Because here's another thing. Um, the, from the perspective of, from the wider perspective of the post Lord of the Rings era, from you know what I think of as the Quest of Erebor perspective, um, Gandalf knows what the point of the dwarf journey is. That is, he's not just trying to reestablish Erebor; he's trying to get rid of the dragon so that the dragon can't be used by Sauron as a weapon or an ally um, for him to try to go over the mountains and attack Rivendell or come down to attack Lorien. Um, so Gandalf's plan is to take advantage of the fact that there are these dwarves who really want to also get rid of the dragon to help them so that he can accomplish one of his ends and help to thwart some of Sauron's plans. But Sauron is not, you know, the, the story, the Hobbit story is a very dwarf-centered story. And Sauron is not very dwarf-centered. That is, 
I think a reason needs to be given as to why Sauron particularly cares about this group of dwarves and one hobbit traveling through the Northland. They certainly don't look like much of a threat to Smaug. And of course, in the book, they don't turn out to be much of a threat to Smaug. Um, so if we are going to have, as it seems we're going to, based on everything we've seen, I think that we're going to, it seems to me, we're going to be getting the necromancer actually paying attention to and caring about and trying to thwart, you know, the dwarves quest. Why should he care? Um, you know, why should he even pay attention to this? Why should it be a big deal? Um, and again, I wonder, it's conceivable uh, that the Dwarven Ring could be used uh, as as a kind of a link there to give Sauron and the Dwarves more of a personal history, and especially Sauron and Thran's family, um, to give them more of a backstory, because he is the one who gave them the ring and also took the ring away from them. Does Thorin know about the ring? Um, he doesn't in the book, of course, because the ring didn't exist in the book. Um, but does Thorin know about the Ring of Power? Even in the quest of Erebor, his dad hasn't really told him about it. That he doesn't really know, um, you know he doesn't get it. Thran doesn't give it to him before Thran sets off on his journey. Um, so Thorin is still not necessarily totally in the dark, but he's not involved with it. Are they going to play up that angle? Is Thorin going to be looking for the ring of his father's? Is he concerned about that? Um, is that going to be on his radar screen at all? It could be. Remember that in the in the Lord of the Rings, when Balin goes to, to invade Moria and to try to reoccupy Moria, his primary motivation was to search for the ring of power. They thought that Thror took it with him when Thror went to Moria and was killed by Azog. And so therefore, they conclude, the ring of power, the last ring of power, is probably in Moria somewhere where Azog had it because they, the dwarves who defeated Azog and the goblins, never sacked Moria. They never went into it, as some of them wanted to do when they won the battle, but they never went. So the ring might just be lying in there, never reclaimed, and now taken over by goblins again. So Balin is... So this idea of like the lingering influence of... not influence, direct influence of the dwarven ring, but this sort of life that it has as a motivator of dwarvish actions and as a potential connection between Sauron and the dwarves does carry on for a while um, in the further story as Tolkien develops it in both the, uh, the Quest of Erebor and in, and in the Lord of the Rings itself. So that then sets up my overall question as to, is this going to be done at all uh, at all in the films? Any thoughts or reflections on, on, on any of this stuff before I ask the the question in official riddling form. Hmm. We've got a lot of comments. <clears throat> See, Daniel's like, not sure about this. Daniel, Daniel Helen, says, yeah, yeah, Daniel. Daniel Helen says, if yeah. Thorin wanted the ring, surely he would ask Gandalf if he knew anything about it, or would Thorin think his grandfather had the ring last? Possibly, at least that's certainly what the rest of the, that's what Dan and Balin and the rest of the survivors believe in the Lord of the Rings that it was Thror who had it. Um, would Thorin mention it to ask Gandalf? I don't think he would ask Gandalf. I think he would play that one really close to the vest um, because you know dwarves are suspicious and secretive under the best of circumstances, and when it comes to things like the Ring of Power. Um, it, even remember the, the little preface that Glowen gives when he finally comes out with that at the Council of Elrond. You know, he says, indeed, I may now reveal. Um, 
you know, that it was, you know, chiefly to seek for the Ring of Thor that Balin went to Moria. He didn't lead with that. You know, he right. doesn't say that at the beginning. He, he grudgingly reveals that they were looking for the ring. They don't want to talk about it. So, yeah, but he so gr- maybe the dwarves don't actually want people to know they're looking for it. Yeah, or even to know that it exists. Um, so I wouldn't expect Thorin to talk to Gandalf about it, but might we hear him refer to it? Might we hear some, you know, dwarf-on-dwarf conversation? I don't know if Thorin is going to have a confidant among the other dwarves. I would guess he might. Balin would seem to be the, the, the leading candidate for that role, as, like, Thorin's senior advisor. Um among the dwarves, are we going to get some Thorin Balin conversation or references to the ring? Um, you know that that uh, you know that that certainly could be possible. Um, uh, oh, Andrew has an interesting point. Uh, you know, he asks, "Will the scene of the sh- uh, of the shards of Narsil and Rivendell open up this question?" Um, you know, that is the the idea of the with the ring of power and 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 that coming up conceivably. Um, we're going to get it, of course. We're going to have the rings involved. I mean, if you think about it, actually, um, all of the rings of power are going to be involved here. We'll get the, the, the ring wraiths, right, in the tombs of the Nazgul. So I, mm-hmm. I, I imagine the nine rings are going to come up. We will probably, I would think, see the three elven rings in action in some sense. Uh, in the Battle of Dol Guldur, we have, of course, the ring of power um, uh, that... Uh, that Bilbo already has secretly. So uh, the Dwarven Rings are the only one missing the party here, and although they certainly were not going to... Obviously, we wouldn't see them acting in concert because they're mostly gone, but would this kind of put it on the film's... Ra- you know, would, would this whole situation put that on the, the, the radar screen of the films? Well, and so... So you're th- thinking that there would at least be a mention of them, right? Like a nod. So. Yeah. Um... Dave, what were you going to say? Well, one thing, one thing, uh, one question that this raises for me um, is, uh, um, and of course, I'm going to add the, the caveat that there's no sort of there's no requirement that their that that their interpretation of the Hobbit on screen be consistent with events from the Lord of right. the Rings books that were not portrayed on screen in their film version of those. Right. But right. Uh, you know, the one thing that I would wonder about is is any effort to to emphasize the dwarf ring on screen in these films um, sort of it seems like it would lead inevitably to it being a topic of conversation amongst characters, something that people are aware of. And 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 that I mean, like uh, one thing I always wondered about um, in reading through all these books um was the fact that the dwarves did not know what happened to uh, Thror's ring, but Gandalf did, and you always felt like, you know, Gandalf, that would have been some, that would have been good to know, buddy. <laughs> like, right, right. It's kind you, of a jerk move by Gandalf not to just mention that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, um, <laughs> Glowen's like, yeah, that's actually, you know, uh, the we're here because our good friend Balin, you remember him, right, Gandalf? Yeah, he led a bunch of dwarves <laughs> away on an ill-advised quest to retake Moria, all to find the ring. Oh, oh, yeah, the uh, he's not going to find it. Yeah, oh, yeah, probably, probably should have mentioned before that I've right, known for yeah. centuries. Could have saved yeah. a lot of trouble <laughs> and grief and suffering Oops. if I I had that. it written on a piece of paper that I had in my pocket for 91 years. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. I've known this yeah. for 100 years. I just never thought it was important to mention until this very moment. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, if if they do try to play up the ring, it seems like 
they can't really go that route of Gandalf not... You know, it seems like Gandalf... Either Gandalf won't know what happened to it in this film, or or he'll he'll reveal it, which which would be, you know, which would make um, the, the diehard Tolkien fans howl, maybe, because it's inconsistent with the books. I, and they don't have to be consistent with the books, but it's just one thing I wonder, like, if they're going to play it up, it, it'll have to be... They'll have to change that. People will have to know what's happened to it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I also sort of wonder... How are they going to get any closure to that? Because, you know, I mean, goodness, you could even, <clears throat> one could even imagine the dwarf ring, uh, one could go so far as to actually involve it in the story itself. I mean, if we're going to, we, we were debating, in fact, on our very first Riddles in the Dark episode ever, whether or not we're actually going to meet Thran himself. Yes. Um, and, you know, if that's the case, the seizure of his ring and the question of what happened to his ring could very well happen on screen. I mean, we could get, because, you know, a question that I would have is, you know, what kind of, if they're searching for it, one difficulty is that, or if they're thinking about it even, or talking about it, how do you g give closure to that particular plot line right. of the films? Um, do they just, is it by discovering at the end? Do we have, as you were suggesting, Gandalf coming to them in book three and or in film three and saying, "Yeah, guys, uh, actually, I just been to Dol Guldur and uh, Sauron totally has the ring." Um, sorry about that. You know, so um, what? Don't go questing after it. Do, yeah, wh whatever you do, yeah, don't try to set up an ill-advised Moria colony uh, in order to find it because it's totally not <laughs> worth your time. Um, but. Uh, so yeah, I mean that that's one that's one possibility, and I mean it, it could be, it could be you know Sharon brings up a really interesting point, which is how are they going to to sort of are they going to involve the Arkenstone? We have assiduously avoided talking about the Arkenstone uh, in this show because nothing could have been clearer than the fact that the Arkenstone is a originally film two now film three issue, um, and I still certainly believe that that's true. But of course, the Arkenstone in the book is the thing of central desire, and it's one of the things which would be complicated by involving the Dwarven Ring. If the Dwarven Ring becomes the greatest treasure of, of Thorin's house, which it is, then it displaces the Arkenstone. The Arkenstone becomes the second greatest treasure of Thorin's house, right. and therefore its role at the end of the story um, becomes made more awkward or kind of reduced. So by not having the dwarf ring involved, you at least kind of maintain the integrity of that plot. Yeah, that's um somebody brought this up a long time ago in the comments on the the Mythgard site proposed the idea that maybe they'll conflate um dwarf ring and arkenstone and arkenstone will become like the nickname for the for the ring. Um right. cuz you you're right that is a, I mean there is kind of a dilemma here in that um, uh, uh, that that as you say, if the ring is emphasized, then um, then then the the role of the Arkansas naturally has to be de-emphasized. Unless unless mm -hmm. they cleared up from the very beginning, Thorne's like, I'd really like to get that ring back, and Gandalf's like, Well, you won't find it. The necromancer took it. All right. Well. Right. Okay. Well, I guess I'll right. settle for an Arkansas then. Um, <laughs> right. But at the same right. time, the Arkenstone um, it kind of is this weird artifact. Hey, we're getting into the the um, um, 
uh, Verilyn Flieger's talk from uh, MythCon right, in right. 2011. From MythCon last year, but yeah. it's a weird artifact in that it, uh, you know she sort of she argues that it's actually it's used effectively in the story, which you know I think was a good argument. But in the overall sort of in the overall mythology, it's kind of this weird sort of one-off thing that doesn't really sort of fit well into the rest of the 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 um the the bigger picture of the Lord of the Rings and all of that. The ring kind of fits better into that storyline. So yes, and 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 you'll notice how, how you know basically the Arkenstone gets retired at mm-hmm. the end of the Hobbit and never you know, because it's it's placed on Thorin's breast, right? I mean it's yep. it's. Um, it's basically laid on his tomb, and therefore, and like that's kind of the end of the Arkenstone story. Um, yeah. Now, the idea of the conflation is an interesting one, and like, lest people be like overly shocked and appalled by that. Not that there's nothing shocking and appalling about it, um, but actually, you know, there is some resonance with that in Tolkien's earlier thought on it. If you look at the earliest um, plot notes, the earliest sketch that Tolkien ever wrote about how the Hobbit story would end, as he was writing the Hobbit, as he was writing out the manuscript, he would stop every once in a while and write just like a page of sketchy notes, um, which would sometimes get a little bit more full and he'd include some dialogue and stuff as ideas came to him. Um, But he would sketch out these ideas for how the the next part of the story was going to go. And in the very first set of plot notes, which he writes right about the time when, right about the time of the end of the first film, actually, uh, when uh, Bilbo and uh, the wizard and dwarves all arrive at Bjorn's house, um, at that point he sketches out through the end of the story. And Bilbo was going to get, to get the Arkenstone. It wasn't called that yet. It was called the Gem of Gurion. Um, but uh, this was it was designed initially to be a portable 14th share for Bilbo, since Bilbo obviously couldn't take 1 14th of the entire treasure home and the dwarves didn't want to cheat him, they were going um, to give him this incredibly fabulous gem, which did not yet have the kind of family significance that it comes to have for Thorin. Um, but instead, they were going to give it to Bilbo. And there's this really fascinating reference that Bilbo was going to take the gem of Girion home and he was going to get like obsessed with it. It was going to be his ring that was going to corrupt him later in life. It was the Arkenstone that he was going to take it home and he was going to keep it in, in, in a safe, but every day he was going to go and take it out and look at it. And uh, I mean, there are these like kind of implications that the Arkenstone has a sketchy effect on Bilbo. Like the ring, in fact, goes on to have its effect on Bilbo. So this idea of the Arkenstone as the as an object of desire, which is perhaps not just a passive uh, object of desire, but certainly becomes something that people begin to have a Gollum-esque relationship with, is something that uh, he was contemplating. You know, he briefly contemplated for Bilbo as he was uh, drafting The Hobbit, and later on, of course, becomes much more firmly associated with Thorin as his desire to possess the Arkenstone becomes more and more possessive, uh, leading him even to threaten violence and death against his own companions if they withhold it from him, which, of course, to be fair, one of them is. Um, so, uh, so anyway, the, the the concept that the ring, uh, you know, the, the the ring of power, and the Arkenstone could have a similar kind of effect, is, you know, and and could be in that sense kind of conflatable, uh, is um, is one which 
you know, is not, I think, entirely alien to the way that Tolkien described it, especially since um, the Arkenstone is clearly a lot like the Silmarils, both in its description and in its effect on people, especially Thorin, and, uh, and also Bilbo to a lesser extent. And, uh, and the Silmarils, of course, are themselves like the precursor of the Rings of Power. Um, so, you know, I, I, connecting those two things is not totally crazy. Uh, and I could imagine a conflation. It would be a little bit weird um, if instead of a gem, you know, a large and heavy gem, they were fighting over a ring with a gem in it or something like that, you know, and so I, that would feel kind of awkward to me, but it doesn't sound insane, I have to say. Yeah, I, I agree with that, although at the end of the day, I think that my, my general feeling is that... Um, one, for on-screen sort of uh, effects, a giant Arkenstone kind of works a little yeah. bit better. Um, yeah. And then for narrative simplicity, I having Bilbo fumbling around with two rings seems seems confusing and complicated. Uh, yes. And I think I, – I personally think – and also I think the ring storyline would, would um, uh, confuse things even more. It's like – Wait, why are we going on this quest again? Is it to reclaim their homeland, as is mentioned right. in the trailer? Is it to get the treasure? Is it get the Arkenstone? Is it get the ring? I I think just sort of on balance, I pro I'm leaning in the direction of no ring, or minimal okay. ring. Minimal ring. Which brings us to the riddle. Which brings us to the riddle. So the question is, um, what if any, <clears throat> what role will the dwarven ring of power play? in the in the film and option a is none at all it will not even be alluded to that is the book answer because it is indeed not alluded to at all in the book um at least not in in the original hobbit book um so no reference to the ring whatsoever is a b is there will be a reference to it we will be made aware of its existence we will know that thran had a ring but it's not going to be a feature you know, it's going to be something that's going to be alluded to and dropped. Um, not going to be any part of the story. Uh, option C is... Wait, Trish, what was option C again? I'm forgetting option C. Something about foreshadowing the power of the One Ring. Oh, yes. It will be... It yes, will be, it only foreshadows. Right. It, it, it will be invoked, but only as a foreshadowing of the effect of the one ring that we, that is we will talk we will we will hear about uh and this i think it really hinges upon whether we get thran um or the story of thran um in the first film if we don't this is going to end up being a second film question um and i would actually suggest that maybe if we don't get if we don't get gandalf and if we don't end up getting gandalf and dol guldur in film one that uh we might have to just uh bump this question and our predictions back to the second film. Oh, we'll just replay this part of the um, you know, episode <laughs> exactly. today as a new episode. Exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, so so that basically it serves, um, it's, it's, it's invoked but only as a foreshadowing of the corruptive, in, corruptive influence of the One Ring. Like, that is, it's just a setup. It's just a setup for Bilbo's ring uh, to kind of help us to understand uh, the significance of Bilbo's ring to see in, in Thran, to, hear, to either hear about or see in Thran the corruptive influence of the possession. Because, of course, what Bilbo is going to have, he's not going to understand what he has. He will have met Gollum, but 
I am not sure how clear it's going to be. It is certainly not not clear to Bilbo in the book, even in the revised version of the book, um, the post-1947 version of the book, um, where Gollum is corrupted uh, by the ring and uh, more wicked and miserable. Even there, it is not... Bilbo doesn't have any suspicion that the ring did that to him, right? That possession of the ring is what makes you into that. Um, <coughs> so I could imagine, for instance, the film using... Uh, using the story of of Thrayan and his desperation and what led him to do what he did and his, uh, you know, because he, he is, a, I mean, in the quest of Erebor, he has a, some definite Gollum moments. You know, when, when Gandalf meets him, the reason he's witless, like what has driven him insane is the taking away of his ring, that he has had his ring taken away by force and it's all he can talk about. Um, and he is pretty incoherent about everything else, which is why Gandalf doesn't know who the map and key belong to, doesn't even know for sure at the time who it is that he's speaking to. He doesn't even know that it's Thran. So, um, so again, that, that could be, again, a used as a foreshadowing of the effect of a ring of power upon the holder of it. Um, and then option D would be that it is uh, more, you know, in some of the ways, in one or more of the ways that I was describing, actually integrated into the plot and made to be, either it appears or, you know, either it, it appears, becomes one of, you know, Thorin's goals in the quest or becomes something which informs the backstory of Sauron and, the, and, and Thorin's house and so therefore influences the necromancer plot. Some kind of active, and I'm being deliberately vague about this because I think that any, any way in which it actually impacts the development of the story becomes a feature of the narrative um, would for me count as D. Mm-hmm. So... So, Dave, are you an A or a B? Are you a no reference at all or passing reference and that's it? Boy, oh boy. This is a tough one. I'm going with A. Going with A? No mention. Totally silent on the ring question. Yep. Hoping that we're going to forget the fact that dwarves were handed rings of power in the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, not that we'll forget, but just that it doesn't concern this storyline. Right, right. That it's irrelevant to the storyline. Yeah. Trish, what do you think? I'm going with B, which is what you were leading Dave to do. <laughs> well, because I, I think Jackson is going to remain conscious of making, you know, his his continuity between the two, you know, two trilogies. So I think there will be a past reference, but I don't think it's going to, you know, I think that'll be it. I don't think it's going to foreshadow, and I don't think it's going to be a plot feature. I... Think, How about you, Corey? <laughs> I think it's going to foreshadow. I'm going with C. I'm going with C. I don't think. I do think in the end it's going to complicate things too much. I could imagine it happening, but I think in the end it's going to complicate things too much, Dave, as you were suggesting. Like certainly having multiple rings, in particular Bilbo in possession of multiple rings, would be very confusing. Like which ring do I have in which pocket? Um, but uh, that's not going to work. But um, if we get Thran, I think Thran is going to be a proto-Gollum. I do. I think that, that that's going to be... It provides them with the opportunity for a middle ground. That is, in Bilbo and Gollum, we get a before and after picture of the corruptive power of the ring. In Thran, we get a more kind of halfway stage. Um, 
and something that is more recognizable. Gollum, the whole one of the one of the whole dramas of the Gollum plot of the Lord of the Rings, is Frodo's recognition of Gollum as a ruined creature. You know, as somebody who is like him, but who has been ruined. That, of course, is the insight that Bilbo has, which leads him to have pity on Gollum. Um, in the in the Hobbit book, and I will be very interested to see how that gets played, um, and if Martin Freeman is going to have his moment of pity, uh, and and how that's going to be handled because it's a whole internal uh, in the book. So anyway, I'll be very interested to see that. But anyway, as I say. That that idea, but but the point is that it's a revelation. When you look at Gollum, the first thought is not necessarily, oh, he's a guy who used to be just like you and me, but who has been over centuries twisted and and corrupted by the power of the ring. Um, he's too far gone for that. Thrain is not too far gone, and he provides a middle ground to enable them to show the stages. Um, you know, Bilbo might not look at Gollum and say, oh, like, if I keep this ring that I have in my pocket right now, it's going to turn me into that. The audience might not necessarily think that directly, though, I mean, they know about this more having seen the Lord of the Rings films. But if we can get through Thran, that kind of warning, that kind of like, here's somebody who doesn't look like a hobbit exactly, but at least looks recognizable, somebody who looks like Thorin, or somebody who looks like one of the other dwarves, and we see what his ring of power did to him. Um, and to have that as a kind of a warning, even if it's kind of subtle to sort of set up this progression that Peter Jackson is pointing to that we're going to see in Bilbo of the ring influencing him more and more and to have Thran as, a, as an opportunity to set that up, um, especially if the initial speculations about the trailer from last December are correct and Thran is that crazy guy that Gandalf is finding right. in the ruins, mm-hmm. um, then I feel even more... I'm, I've still never been 100% sold that that's, in fact, what that is. Um, but if it is, then I would feel even more confident in my prediction that we're going to get Thran not just as kind of witless and wandering as he is described, but um, completely proto Gollum Thran? Yes, proto Gollum. Do you think? Do you think that that? Do you think that could also be uh, one of the action figures that they'll release? Proto Gollum <laughs> Thran. Proto Gollum Thran. Yes. <laughs> Barking mad Thran the dwarf. Yes. yes. Um, no, I, I want them to actually. Refer, I want them to officially name the character Proto Gollum Thran. <laughs> proto Gollum Thran. And, and maybe that's maybe that's an indicator that Thran won't show up until the film too, because we don't have the toy out yet. <laughs> Um, well, there are lots of toys we don't have yet. Actually, that's, this is true. that brings up a que- that brings up a good clarifying question, which is that that in keeping with our 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 um, our policy, we are referring to the first film. So that's right. So if if right. if it happens to be the case that the ring is not right. mentioned at all in the first film and then becomes like the most important central artifact of the second film, I still got it right. <sighs> that's right. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. You notice, Corey, that Dave is more concerned now about him being right. I know. No, no, I know. no. I, it's, less, it's less that and more about making sure making sure we're 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 clear on the rules of the game so that we can determine a winner. So that so that right. so that there's none of this. So that there's no like. Right. Oh well, it got pushed off to the second film, but it was still there. So technically, I was kind of right. No, 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 no. First film. First right. film. Okay. Here's here's the one thing. Right. I'll say. 
I will be lobbying our adjudicating committee if <laughs> Gandalf's trip to Dol Guldur is in fact pushed back to the second film, I am going to lobby to push this prediction question back to the second film. Because I think that it basically, to say that it's not mentioned just because it hasn't been mentioned yet, uh, you know, because it's, is, you know, to me that changes the parameters of this question. So if we don't get Dol Guldur at all in this, if that in fact is going to be happening while they're up in Mirkwood and so we don't even get the opportunity to meet Proto-Gollum Thrayan, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm 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 going to, you know, I say, I'm not going to, I'm saying I'm going to be able to determine this because I won't be able to determine this unilaterally, but I would petition the committee to push this back well, and we make can, it a second film. I, I, so I, in general, my feeling is that, in general, my feeling is that for topics like this, where, where, um, if there is a reason to, particularly if it's a sort of, you know, Turns out it wasn't included in this film, but if there's a very good reason to revisit it and say we 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 are led to believe that it will be featured in a later film, I'm I'm mm-hmm. I I think it would be perfectly appropriate to to do right. the question again. Um, I'm just saying uh, it's not so much pushing this question back as it is just doing another question or or revisiting the question again. But well, that's fair. But but all along our, our our policy in general has been unless in order to in order to enable ourselves to be able to after the first first film comes out to sit down and actually go through the questions and and determine quote unquote correct answers and actually be able to give out prizes and assign winners and whatnot in order to be able to do that that's why we we generally have the policy of questions as the questions posed before this film apply to the first film if it turn if we're led to believe that that somehow the question actually remains relevant for later films okay we'll ask it again but we'll still score the question this time around for the first film so so um are you okay with that Corey? i suppose so though as i say <laughs> i would feel i would feel cheated if the uh Gandalf and Dol Guldur, which we have been led to believe, because really this this is a post-split into three films issue. I mean, that first trailer does pretty strongly suggest that Gandalf is going to be doing some of this yeah, solo but, questing. Yeah, but you're right. It's oh, not well. clear. I mean, because recall in the Empire magazine, they did say Gandalf at Dol Guldur moved to film two. Right, but is it the Battle of Dol Guldur? Um, no, or... no. Well, well, the context of the quote, Let me let me pull it up. Dang it! Where is this freaking link? Empire magazine. Ah, there we go. And it's on page six. So go back to there. We go. On page six, they say um, they were two weeks away from Comic Con 2012, where Jackson would reveal footage from Bag End, um, Gollum's cave, and an intervening montage that turned out to be more forward-looking than he might have had in mind. Evangeline Lily's elf maiden and Gandalf being stalked through the overcast ruins of Dull Goldor is now in episode two, The Desolation of Smog. Oh, geez. Um, and Jackson says, uh, falls up, we were looking at some of the cutting that we'd done, thinking about the overall shape of two films and how to shape blah, 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 blah. Basically, um, and again, I always add, I add the caveat here that the, the comments about Evangeline Lilly and Gandalf here are not in quotes. So this could be yeah. confirmed or this could be extrapolation by the author. But the indication, according to the author, is that scenes that we've previously seen in released material, trailers, Comic-Con, whatever, that at the time was we were meant to see because right. it was 
planned right. to be in film one is now being moved to film two and 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 Peter Jackson's makes makes it, the indication is that it's making him a little uncomfortable because it's like we showed you this and oops actually now we've moved it to film two. But I'm going to be about the writer the way you are about the actors. I mean, if this guy or girl who wrote the article has not read the book mm-hmm. and Jackson says something or Boyan says something about Dahl Gulder is going to get moved to film two, mm-hmm. that could, they could just have inferred this. Yeah, it's because possible. they don't know that that's how Gandalf gets the map and ran, uh, map no, no, and it, keys. It, it's possible, but what they're referring to, what I, what they're referring directly to is not just the general idea or story of Gandalf going to Dol Guldur, but specifically scenes that we saw that we are in this conversation right. referring to. So we're saying yeah, we've seen this scene of Gandalf at Dol Guldur fighting crazy old Thran. Um, and what the article is indicating is, you know, that scene of Gandalf, a dull golder fighting old Thran that's in film two now. Right. Um, but again, I still think that could be an inference, but yeah. anyway, well, I, the main reason I'm, bringing... I mean, I, then it opens the question as to how Gandalf gets the map and key. Well, the, the, the main reason I'm bringing this up is basically, I'm saying, basically, this is all to say you were warned. <laughs> you have no right. <laughs> you have no right to complain and say they showed us that scene, but it wasn't in the first film. No, no, no. no. You've you been right? warned. You're right about it's that. Probably right not in the that. first film. <laughs> so you're right about that. Um, okay, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. And I have to admit uh, that my mind is simply shuddering back in blankness from the idea of Toriel accompanying Gandalf. Um, Oh, I don't I, think I don't I don't think that's meant to. Is that what it's suggesting? I think it's suggest. I think it's actually talking about two different two things. Yes. About Toriel, comma, and Gandalf stalking. So yes. not Toriel and Gandalf stalking in Dol Guldur. Yes, because I, so I got to watch your punctuation. I don't recall ever seeing footage or being or anyone Phew. mentioning no. footage or no. describing footage no. of the two of them together. I hope. No. Um, <laughs> no. Yes, okay. Corey. Phew. The first time I read that, I was also like. What? No. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, didn't didn't yes. even didn't even register the. This is being pushed to film too. All I was I just got hung up on. Hey, <laughs> Tario and Gandalf at Dol Guldur. <laughs> oh my god. And I was like, no, wait, 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 wait. I think it's two separate yeah. things. Two separate things. Okay. Okay. Excellent. All right. All right. Well, so 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 uh, just my final, plea, my final plea. My final plea is this. I would strongly recommend that that everybody listening, um, when making predictions to this, base it upon when you're thinking will the will the uh, you know the question is as is our policy, will the will the dwarf ring play a role in particular in the first film, um, and and in deciding how it might play a role, I strongly suggest people not assume that footage of Gandalf at Dol Guldur will be included in the first film. It, 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 that's shaky okay. ground. I would think more that's likely to be put in the second film, so if the ring's going to be included in the first film, how might it be included? Will it be brought up at the, the, the dinner at Bag End or some, some other, you know, White Council scene or something? And that's largely why, I, why I'm going with, with, uh, with it. I'm leaning toward the direction of very little presence of the ring, because I don't think there's a very good way to introduce it that won't confuse the story. So, Okay. Well, I still think that at least an exposition of... <clears throat> I mean, the map and the key have to come from somewhere. Yes, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's got to be something. And it may well be that that footage of Gandalf and Dol, Gul- Dol Guldur that we saw before, which we all 
believed at the time was probably uh, Gandalf's trip where he gets the map and key and meets Thrain may not be. That may be involved in the Battle of Dol Guldur sequence um, somehow, which I, I don't know how that's going to play itself out. Um, especially since... Or the other possibility is Gandalf that Gandalf... Talks. The other possibility is that Gandalf talks about having uh, gotten the map and key from Thryon in movie one, but the scene of Gal... 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 is uh, a flashback in movie two, you know, remember how they did the Smeagol story with the ring? Right, and, right. Uh, that could happen right. too. So. Possibly. Though I wouldn't think that they would use that as a flashback in that way. No, I wouldn't either, but it's possible. Uh, but, um, but anyway, yeah, it is because, uh, I mean, unless, of course, like, you know, my theory would be entirely blown out of the water if they just decide that Gandalf is getting the map and key some other way. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, so I don't know where exactly, but anyway, whatever. Um, nope. You know, I'm sticking with a whole another episode on that. I'm, 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 I'm sticking with C. And I, that is my reason. And I'm glad. Now, do you, based on the map and key. And I'm glad. I think it's really fun when, when, when the, when we, uh, when each person gives a different answer, then we actually are getting some controversy. <laughs> that almost never happens, actually. Well, controversy. Yes. I, I don't <laughs> think that's. I think that's like the first time, isn't it? <laughs> Not the first, but certainly one of the most controversial. Uh, yeah. Should we review yeah. answers from which is amazing to me, given how di how much difficulty we had coming up with this riddle question? So I'm pleased that That's we true. have controversy. So, um, uh, listeners, uh, those of you who are listening with us live here, uh, we've got a couple votes. Uh, Jason votes B, and Andrew uh, Higgins votes, yeah, Jason votes C. D. Okay. Braze with me, B. Yeah. All right, all right. Ed and Billy are A's. We did have a C. We did have a C back here somewhere. Yep. yep. Billy C. Owen. A. Owen did C. So, Kate, a reminder. A, a is no reference to the ring at all. B is passing reference to the ring, but no involvement in the story of any significance at all. C is it's involved, but only as a kind of foreshadowing or building up to the Ring of Power and its influence on Bilbo, you know, that is only as a, like, case study in uh, Ring of Power ownership and its risks. Uh, C, or D, rather, is um, that it has some kind of more significant role in the plot, um, that it's actually, it becomes a plot feature in some, um, in some larger sense. E is, it's and... a talking character like the purse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and, and I was going to add, just in case it makes a difference, A is the Dave answer, B is the Trish answer, and C is the Corey answer. That's right. That's right. All right, I'm getting some Cs. Some are several other people following me on the Primrose <laughs> path here. Dave, do you notice that when he gives the answers, the answers are A is really short, B is really short, C, he explains in great detail. <laughs> hey, well, Billy... Uh, Billy is excited to to be in agreement with me and Mark Fisher. Yeah, and Mark right. Fisher. That's right. Who will just I guess we're just presupposing he'll select A. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Kelly. Kelly prefers A or B, but she's imagining some horrible combination of D and E. <laughs> yes. Yes. If anybody actually has like a dialogue with the Dwarven Ring of Power, that's oh. E. Yeah, that counts as E. Yeah, like a like a like a Turin Turin bar esque conversation. Yeah, if it whispers like the ring in, in Lord of the Rings did, that doesn't count, right? Ooh. 
wouldn't do that. But yeah, no, that would be. So. Uh, God, no, I don't know. That would be the unofficial E. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Ed, no. Ed says, Ed says, option P. Philippa just makes up some crazy thing. <laughs> now that's not fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, very good. Um, now, and, uh, Corey, it, you might want to bring people up. If, if I was going to say, if people enjoy this kind of conversation, you have a venue. Exactly. No, I was just going to talk about that. Um, okay. So yes, we have um, we have been moving forward. We've announced this in previous times, but we have now uh, arrangements have been uh, made and and uh, uh, and ticket sales are open. We have now officially MythMoot 2012, sponsored by the MythGuard Institute. It will be a gathering of MythGuard students and Tolkien fans uh, to watch the Hobbit film together. We have an official venue. We are meeting at the Cinemark. Egyptian 24 in Hanover, Maryland. We have a, uh, a theater reserved there which, where we will be watching the film in 3D in 48 frames per second. Um, so we will get the full Peter Jackson Hobbit effect here. Um, so we have a private screening of this film. After this, we are going to be retiring to the BWI Marriott, where we have some conference space reserved, and we are going to spend the rest of that day and part of the next uh, talking over the film because we're going to have to we're going to have a lot of conversation that we're going to have. We're going to have a lot of ground to go over. A lot of uh, a lot of us uh, will I know want to be sharing our reactions and talking things over. So we're going to we're we're going we are making this into sort of a mini little academic conference. It's not going to be an academic conference in the sense of people writing papers and coming to read papers and stuff. It's going to be more open discussion panels because it's going to be primarily uh, about the, the the Hobbit film that we will just have seen together. Um, so we're going to spend the afternoon on Saturday uh, at the hotel talking over the film and uh, we're going to have some you know breakout sessions and smaller discussion groups to address sort of particular angles of the film and then we'll come back together and do presentations from those groups on Sunday so that we can all talk about them together we're going to have a banquet uh, there at the Marriott on Saturday night to celebrate the release of the film uh, that we've been looking forward to so much through these uh, podcast episodes um, so this is going to be sort of the ultimate riddles in the dark experience um, we're going to have announcements of winners we're going to have the scoring people who are uh, there attending the panel are going to be serving as our official adjudicating committee um, who are going to be who are going to be who are going to be empowered to make the decisions as to what the official uh, the official answer correct answers are to our questions uh, we're going to be tallying up scores and uh, announcing uh, grand winners giving various prizes um, so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be it's going to be really cool. Um, we're watching the, yes we're watching the film fairly early in the day. We're going to start the film at 10 a.m. Uh, in Hanover because we want to make sure then we have the whole afternoon uh, and evening to talk about things. If we started it middle afternoon, we would barely have any time left to talk. Um, Brianna asks if any of this will be streamed live. I hope so. We're certainly going to record some of our sessions so that people, because I know not everybody's able to make it to Baltimore, Maryland, so um, you know we don't want to exclude everybody who can't happen to travel, so we will do some uh, releases of that. Um, but, uh, but this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have... Um, uh, as I say, you know, uh, very active discussion panels. We're going to have, uh, we're going to have entertainment. We're going to have a banquet. It's going to be, it's going to be really cool. So, uh, those of you who live in the area um, uh, and can make it, uh, uh, we would love to see you. You can, um, you can go to. 
Uh, you can go to the MythGuard website, uh, www.mythgard.org, M-Y-T-H-G-A-R-D.org, um, and you can find links to the MythMoot there. Um, it's and, under uh, news and events, by the way, if somebody's looking for that. News and events. That's right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, and you can also see we have a Facebook event. If you search on Facebook, um, you can also find more information there, including, you know, maps and addresses and things. So you can actually try to gauge how, uh, how far away it is. Um, from where you are. We have people traveling all over the place uh, to come to this. We have uh, several people. We have at least uh, two and possibly three people flying over from England, uh, one person flying over from France, one person flying out from Alaska uh, to come to this event. It should be, uh, it should be a lot of fun. Um, so um, uh, we'll have Trish flying up from Texas, and we hope he's flying out from California if he can, though I, I know you got a lot of things going on then, so that I'm, might... I'm cautiously optimistic. Person, but um, anyway... Uh, I'm cautiously so optimistic I, I, that uh, I'll make I, it. I hope we'll be able to see... Uh... Good. If yes. not, we'll have to have you there as a talking head right. at least. But I can't... Exactly. But, I can't pur- but I'm not pur- yes. purchasing my ticket ahead of time because I... Basically what it boils down... It, it really comes down to... I have a publication deadline, basically that... Uh, the 14th, which <laughs> right. is... Which is the Friday, yeah. the Friday. and yep. and if um, if if uh, if I you know if the paper's done two weeks in advance, my advisor's like, all right, well let's just submit it ahead of time. It's nice to be done early and great. But if we're what's if if what's likely to happen based on past experiences, if we're working on it up until the deadline. And I'm like, you know, by the way, advisor, we'll have to work on this remotely because I'll be on the East Coast so I can watch The Hobbit with my friends. She'll kill me. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I guess from a purely academic standpoint, I can understand that point of view. But, but actually, uh, actually, you can't say it was a it was a, a previous made commitment, huh? You can't say that. Right. <laughs> uh, she, I'm I don't think to she'll, attend an academic that... conference that weekend. Yeah. No. Right. Actually, so. Um, Hmm. I have to look. Oh, see, yeah. See, the the deadline is December fifteenth. So actually, if it if it had been the fourteenth, that would be wonderful because then I could just submit it and then catch a red eye uh, um, <laughs> out in time to make it to the film. But uh, because it's well, the you could 15th. program your brain to think it's the fourteenth, couldn't you? Well, I, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to make a Herculean effort over the next month to just get it done and have it be at the point Good where she you. doesn't want to fiddle with it anymore because she has to work on work with the other students and their papers. And she's fine with submitting it early, and uh, and I can tell her like, oh, I wanted to get it done for my final exams, yada yada yada, and then she just <laughs> won't want to see me that weekend. There you go. I think <laughs> that's the best plan. I think that's the best plan. Well, anyway, so we we do hope that lots of people can join us. Uh, it's I am uh, really looking forward to this event. We do have limited seats available. Um, you know, we don't have uh, an infinitely large space at the Marriott uh, for our conference and banquet. Um, and the seats have been going fairly quickly, actually. Uh, we still have a bunch left over. We're not yet uh, in sort of crisis mode about that, but uh, there are definitely not an infinite number of seats, uh, and they are moving. So um, 
we would love to see you and uh, have much sympathy for those of you who are too far away to come to this one. And uh, we hope to, uh, as I say, be able to get some, at least some recordings, if not some, uh, some live discussion out to you guys there as well. So, um, well, thanks very much, everybody, for joining us today. This has been a long, rambling, <laughs> and fun episode. Uh, and uh, um, we look forward to meeting together in another couple weeks as we continue to get closer and closer. We're now only a month and a half away here. Um, we only have, what, like maybe two episodes left before the release of the film? Yeah, I think, I think so. that's right. Two we, three, we, yeah. We're going to need to we need to do a little powwow and, and make sure that we've asked all the questions we want, and we might have to either yeah. do some multi-question episodes or do some extra episodes or, or even just have some yeah. questions that we don't even get to discuss on the air, but, but we pose them anyway, so... Yeah, and actually, you know, anyone who is listening who has a suggestion for a, a riddle or conundrum that you think we, we, we should address or that you, know, you would like to see everyone's opinion on before the first film, uh, do send those along. We would be, uh, we'd be very interested to hear those, um, uh, to, to see what your suggestions are about that. And thanks to everybody who joined us today. I think, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that this was a record number of live attendees that we had today. Um, definitely past uh, 30 at one point yeah no we were we, we had over 30 people with us here so that was a lot of fun um, so what's again, really what's everybody. really interesting is the attendee list uh, had dropped to around 25 and has since gone back up <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I don't know who came and said, and, or, or actually, probably just very experienced people who are like, well, the Riddles in the Dark episode started two hours ago. That's eh, not too late. I'll go in and check on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> only people who know us pretty well would, uh, would, uh, would, would make that conclusion. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Kate and Kat, exactly. I think that most people are... Uh, are uh, housebound uh, from the hurricane here, so a lot of people on the East, everybody on the East Coast who still has power um, has not much else to do today because um, many of the roads are still closed and most businesses are still closed. So. Yep, very good, very good. Okay, um, so I think that's all. So I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.